0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Okay, our topic t- today is this show. Yeah. It's going to go, eh? We're going to have music on it. We're going to have our favorite bands on it. We're going to have songs from the Great White North and all over the world. And uh, there will also be like some commercials, eh? Because it's like a real show. Yeah. So listen to the whole thing. Otherwise, if you don't listen to the whole thing, then, and don't give up because you, you hear commercials, eh? Because like some people really get discouraged with a lot of commercials and things. Yeah, well, like oh, with oh, the TV show, commercials, you can go to the kitchen or something. But with radio commercials, you can still hear it wherever you are. That's the beauty, yeah. eh? Yeah. And but I didn't finish. Oh. And I was saying, don't be discouraged because there will be some commercials
2: into the Pod Awful Channel. Pod Awful. Bicorderly Women's Social Club. Days and Convicted. New Party Radio. Showcase. The Devil's Advocate. The Projection Boom. Awful Flips. Pod Awful. Dot.
3: Dot.
4: Net. Net. Somewhere. Behind granite battlements. Beyond <no acontecendo> impenetrable gates. Indoors, something evil is brewing. And it isn't Elsinore beer. Here, an unsuspecting Aris has become the innocent pawn of a diabolical genius. At his command, Space Age super lasers that can incinerate an entire metropolis. An army of deadly hockey warriors. At his fingertips, Lots of beer. Just one more test, and then we are ready for the world. What fool dares stand in his way?
1: Good day. I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother Doug. How's it
4: going, eh? Welcome to our movie. At last, televisions. Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis have just hit the great white screen. Of are the adventures of Bob and Doug McKenzie? Strange Brew. That's private company business. Perhaps
1: one of these would refresh your memory.
4: The gallant champions of truth. He's lying, all right? I don't need no machine
1: to tell me that, hey,
4: I didn't do it, I swear. It must be them. Justice. I think it's time of the little lady and I had a chat. And the pursuit of bad guys. We'll move towards Octoberfest as planned. I can't
5: believe it. He drank it all.
4: Oh, no. And I will not underestimate our little friends again. With Max Fonsido. Shut up, shut up, shut up. Paul Dooley.
5: You ordered him first, and he was already dead when I killed him.
4: Lynn Griffin. I didn't have puke breath, I'd kiss you. And an all-star cast. Take got you boy. <laughs> <laughs> you take off, you now. <laughs> oh, okay. Don't miss the biggest, the grandest, the first McKenzie Brothers movie of all time. The Adventures of Bob and Doug McKenzie. I'd like to thank the Academy. Academy.
5: That's it. We're leaving,
3: kid. Come
5: on, Strange Brew. You hosier, they wanted to see our movie down in Manhattan. Hey, cop, it's only a preview, eh? I didn't want to show them the best part. Okay. So that's our topic for today. So
3: good day.
6: Welcome to the Projection Booth. Good day. I'm your host, Mike White. Rob St. Mary is on assignment in Ottawa, searching for the perfect plate of poutine. Instead, I'm joined by my pal Skiz Sizek. Take off, eh? And we also have a special guest, Mr. Craig Birko. This week, we are officially kicking off our month of Shakespeare September with one of four films based upon the Bard's work, or you could say five, since last week was Titus, and that was a Shakespeare adaptation, but we're kind of counting that as part of romance. Month. Anyway, this week we're talking about the 1983 film Strange Brew, whose official title is actually The Adventures of Bob and Doug McKenzie Strange Brew. We're just going to be calling this one Strange Brew. It's the story of two Canadian hosers who do a public Access TV show. It's kind of like Wayne's World, but with more beer and less rock and roll. They're played by Dave Thomas, not the burger guy, but the other guy, and Rick Moranis, who also co directed the film. The movie is very much a riff off of Hamlet, with Bob and Doug playing Hamlet's two pals, Rosencrantz and Gilderstern, as they visit the Elsinore Brewery to investigate the strange happenings there and try to scam some free beer, too, eh? Also, like Wayne's World, Bob and Doug were originally characters on a sketch-based television comedy show. It was called SCTV, and we'll be talking more about SCTV, Bob and Doug, and the other unofficial adventures of Bob and Doug. But first, Craig, as one of our two guests this week, when was the first time you saw Strange Brew, and what did you think?
7: It has been within the last 48 hours, so I'm a bit shaken. (laughs) I'm still being debriefed by myself. And uh, yeah, the experience is new. So I'm just, you know, I'm still bleeding. Uh, (laughs) I need to cauterize. And I don't know how to even go about that. I started watching it a a day and a half ago and decided I was going to do it in chunks. I don't want to overly indicate where I'm going with that. But I decided it would be best to do it in chunks. And so that's what I did. I watched it. I watched it like I would read The Firm.
8: How about you, Skiz? Uh, well, I was a huge SCTV fan back when it was still on, so uh, I was well aware of Bob and Doug. I had that album, that Great White North album, uh, so when I heard there was a movie about it, it was on my must-see list, and luckily, the uh, I was living at the beach that summer when it came out, and uh, I was hanging out at a movie theater, and I was able to see it once every day the week it was in theaters. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I also
6: saw it at the theater, only saw it once at the theater. I think I saw it at the AMC Fairlane, or when it was still movies at Fairlane. I wanted that Great White North album a lot when I was a kid, and it took me until I was probably... Late in my teens Before I was able to get it Um, Somehow my mom suckered me Into a deal When we were at Harmony House I wanted to buy that album But instead she talked me into buying The Ragtime soundtrack By Randy Newman And allowed me to have the Takeoff 45 So I played the hell out of that 45 A side and B side And then yeah I uh, listened to a lot of Ragtime (laughs) So, it took me a while to finally be able to get the album, but I was able to see the film, so I was happy about that. And I have to say, by the way, it took me probably a decade or two before I knew who Getty Lee was, and I thought that Getty Lee was a woman because I, his voice is kind of high on that um single, just FYI. Oh yeah.
7: Were you a big SCTV fan, Craig? I was. Highly, highly influential and and I mean, I would put them in the, you know, the top 5 more, more influential uh, comic voices in, in, in my life, which is a really important thing to me. You know, the first time I saw Monty Python was mind-blowing. First time I heard Steve Martin mind-blowing and, and Andy Kaufman. And SCTV, you know, I caught early, early on. I was, I think, in the seventh grade. That was the thing you stayed up. I mean, you stayed up late for Saturday Night Live, but then you just went into the, just the twilight zone, you know, to see SCTV in New York. That came on at uh, 1 o'clock and it was an hour and a half i mean i i don't know how they pulled it off but i quickly you know sort of commandeered them as as just my favorites and 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 along with it was this feeling because it was on so late at night and this was pre-cable and everything you know it's it was just this feeling like a a clubhouse like something you alone discovered and um, yeah you know, i found a couple of my friends who were similarly obsessed and you know Uh, Now, you know, they are what they are. They're they're legendary. I've always been a fan. And uh, and so I I don't know how I managed to miss this movie. It came out in 83. So I was I was in college. I was the prime target for it. But I did. And I think it might have had something to do with the fact that of everything that those guys did, and I want to say, first of all, I've got to preface everything by saying, as an actor, this is the first time I've ever done anything like this, and I'm so uncomfortable with saying anything that isn't laudatory. But I know, that's, <laughs> I, I know that that's what we're doing here, and I know that's the idea, but it's it, I just want to mark my lack of sophistication and my discomfort, <laughs> because uh, I really didn't have a very uh, a positive reaction to it. Uh, and And that surprised me, because... I think the two guys who made this movie are geniuses. Their stuff on SETV absolutely holds up for me, and um, I'm still not swayed. I, I, you know, I read a little bit about it, which I'm sure you're going to get into, but um, you know, discovered some things about the movie which definitely makes sense, and it, it sort of, it, at least, I can make peace with myself because I walked away just thinking, oh, I'm actually walking away. Like I got up and walked. And uh, when I when I did a little research on my own, very little, but just things that other people might already know, it it made sense to me that uh, for me, it it fell short of what I wanted it it to be. Uh, But I think no less of these guys. And uh, if they ever did a sequel, I would love to go see it because so much time has passed it'd be interesting to see what they've learned what their feelings are how they'd want to honor the the because i know it has a very strong core audience that was my initial reaction
6: how about you Skiz? you talked about loving sc tv what kind of stuff was your favorite on there
8: oh man it's hard to hard to say I, so much of it was uh just unlike what was going on on saturday Night live or on fridays I, I mean i think i think just just the silliness the uh the farm report thing where they would have musical guests and blow them up real good. (laughs) You know, it was just so silly. You know, there's really no joke there, but it, it cracked me up every time. And, and then, you know, Bob and Doug, which I I know it started as a sort of throwaway thing. And it was probably one of the, I want to say it was one of the least funny things on the show, but it was still funny that these two characters were so stupid, but there was something, so intelligent about their stupidity <laughs> you know, if that makes any sense there was this charmingness where there was obviously a, th- a lot of thought put into just how stupid these two characters were yeah i, I didn't see that on the other shows
7: just because i i know i wandered into a review and i did whether you want to edit this together or whatever but i did want to uh sort of tip my hat to the question you actually asked which was my feelings about sctv and uh i was I was shouting out you know, names of characters when you were uh, grasping for them because I remember Dave Thomas did this character, Bill Needle, which is the most hilarious name for this character who actually looked like a pincer. You know, Guy Caballero, Johnny LaRue, the Schmengies, all, like, all of this stuff and, and the earlier stuff with Harold Ramis, too, even though – He never, Even from the beginning, he looked like he just didn't look very comfortable on camera, kind of had that half-smile, like, get me out of here. And I'm sure that wasn't what he was feeling, but I I loved the show, and I loved all of the characterizations um, that were on it and, and had a really strong reaction right from the beginning. So that would have been seventh grade on through to now, 50, crying out loud. So Jerry Todd. The show. Jerry Todd, Jerry Todd, Jerry Todd's a character I couldn't remember, but yeah, I love Jerry and Todd. That, I wasn't even really aware. I had an idea of what it was that Jerry Todd was parodying, but I wasn't. I had a feeling it was it was Canadian. A lot of the stuff on the show was, I think, a nod towards some local provincial stuff that I I wasn't sure I got, but I enjoyed it in the way that I enjoyed local references or uh, national references on on Monty Python. You know, there were a lot of names. If you watch the old Monty Python's, they use, they they mention a lot of contemporary celebrity names that are completely lost on me. But it didn't matter. It wasn't the whole idea. And Jerry Todd was a perfect example of. I I know there were shows like that. I just don't remember ever seeing any. This guy's complete obsession with anything video and that oh, it's ridiculous. And the hipster and the turtleneck was it was awesome.
8: It's funny. I think some of the best SCTV material I ever saw, oddly enough, was the night that Bob and Doug hosted saturday night live which unfortunately i think was during one of those seasons where it was on a different network and so you never see repeats of
7: that those seasons but you, but the, well it was on nbc you mean oh maybe it was with a different cast or something when the more like because i've never well, even heard that
8: I mean, well no if if i have the the snl history correctly they switched networks for i think two seasons and
7: then went back SNL, to nbc maybe um
8: uh, maybe I have it wrong, or maybe yeah, it maybe was, they it, or maybe it was, maybe maybe Lauren Michaels wasn't involved producing. I, there was something yeah, different, been, yeah. something different for two seasons, and those two seasons you never see in repeats. But but during those two seasons, Bob and Doug hosted Silent Live, and they brought a lot of their SCTV characters with them, and I think they were actually funnier that night, as much as, as funny as I thought they were on SCTV. I thought they were um, even funnier when they did it on Silent Live. That. I have a VHS of it somewhere. I I taped it and I still have that tape somewhere.
4: Oh that would would be awesome.
8: I have to pull that out.
5: You only gonna do it once? Yeah. Just the abbreviated version, eh? Don't have a lot of time what? Bumper hosts. Hey God.
1: Good day. I'm Bob McKenzie, This is my host head brother, Doug. How's it going, eh? <laughs> Welcome to Saturday Night Live, eh? Yeah. This is live. We've never done that before. No. For eight years, we've been watching this show with you. Yeah. And now we can.
3: <laughs> hey, why are you guys
5: rerunning this show?
6: Yeah, it was weird how they were able to kind of take some of those characters. I mean, I was a huge Martin Short fan on SCTV, and then when he moved over to Saturday Night Live and was doing Ed Grimley and Jackie Rogers Jr. and some of these characters, it was like – I wasn't aware that you could kind of pick up your character and move it from one show to another. I mean, this was before the whole David Letterman intellectual property lawsuit and everything. So I guess you own those characters. You know, Pee Wee Herman could be Pee Wee Herman wherever he was kind of thing, or Paul Rubens, I should say. But it was interesting to see how that worked. And I, I don't know if people who aren't familiar with sctv can really appreciate just the wealth of talent that was on there i mean martin short is one of them dave thomas and he's done so many things rick Moranis, who went on to so many movies i i Catherine eugene O'Hara. levy katherine o'hara eugene levy who it's just only been in the last i don't know decade or so Andrew that martin. people seem to have yeah. recognized eugene levy andrea martin who now has a, a new primetime tv show which is kind of odd though i've kind of feel like she's better than the material that she's been given on the show joe flarity's another one it's just like you know it was everybody who was on that show with the exception of robin duke i'm just kidding i'm just kidding (laughs) but everybody who was on that show was somebody and it's it's weird that you know it was just such a hotbed of talent
7: robin duke she was actually, if you if you read interviews with some of these people on Second City and certainly the people who were in Chicago and in the Toronto companies, you know, people like uh, I don't know, anywhere from Ackroyd to Andrea Martin, but whatever. She was one of them and she was hilarious. And some some of it, I feel, is like the luck of the draw, you know, when a character hits or something is television friendly. But um, they were all regarding her as extremely, you know, hilarious and talented. She still pops up in their projects, you know.
6: It's weird, too, because she was one of those people that moved into Saturday Night Live again. And that was kind of during that weird, dark time of Saturday Night Live. I don't know if she was on the season that had, like, Anthony Michael Hall and Robert Downey Jr. and, um, what, Randy Quaid. Terry Sweeney it was just this kind of weird time out of it that SNL was going on and I think she was somewhere around there probably a little bit after that more like Julia Julia Louis Dreyfus right.
7: I'm up for anybody who like has had their fill and they disappeared because they just don't want to do it anymore I think some of the people are those people you know because it's it's still even if you're one of those lucky people someone like Martin Short who connects I mean it's still very very tiring and you still have to have a life. And uh, maybe it wasn't for everybody. You know, they were all much younger. And A lot
6: of times when I think about Saturday Night Live, I think, you know, they're they're getting these fresher, fresh-faced comedians that, you know, this is their first big gig. But when they were getting people from SCTV, they had been around the block. They already had these pre-existing characters. They'd yeah. already been doing this stuff. And the thing that I liked about SCTV a little bit more than Saturday Night Live was that it wasn't live. It felt a little bit more polished. Didn't care for the laugh track a whole lot, but I liked that they were using this whole television station conceit.
7: You get the feeling that Saturday Night Live was like the Beatles and SCTV was the Rolling Stones. It was, it was harder, it was later. It was uh, you had to hang in there because some of the sketches were you know would be these extended twenty minute riffs. Yeah. They were lampooning a movie maybe you've never even heard of, but it was funny to them, and it still kind of worked. But it was just it always seemed a little bit more rock and roll to me. And SNL after those initial five years, I just felt like it, it's all it became like a people pleaser. They're they're all very talented. I don't take anything away from them, but it's just not. And maybe I'm I've just I've aged out or something like that, but. Uh, I don't connect with it nearly in the same way that I used to with the first five years, but certainly with, you know, a CTV.
6: Well, for a little while there, it felt like Saturday Night Live was just this breeding ground for what are we going to make a movie out of next? What one character can we beat into the ground on TV and then give them their own film? And next thing you know, you've got, you know, Superstar or the, you know, the Church Lady movie or whatever. And it's just like, oh, for God's sakes.
1: Randy! The
6: Ranster.
1: Only one copy for the Randman! Randy!
6: It's Pat, yeah. The ladies' man, you know. (laughs) Coneheads. uh, Night at the Roxbury. Oh, gosh. Yeah, and we didn't necessarily see that with SCTV, except for bob and doug so taking us all the way back here and with bob and doug i mean i was a huge fan when they were on sctv and now looking at them i think SCTV also had that thing that you guys were talking about as far as it was on so late. And I think the later it is, the more punchy are the funnier it is. I remember the first time I saw mystery science theater 3000, it was during the day and I didn't think it was funny at all. And then coming home and seeing it after I had worked double shift one o'clock in the morning or whatever, it was
8: a lot funnier. (laughs) I also felt like it was kind of a personality thing because you know that, that was one of the things. that Monday morning at school, you would talk about what you saw on Fridays and what you saw on Saturday Night Live, and then I would always steer the conversation to SCTV, and and people would look at me like, "No, yeah, we we turn it off after SNL. <laughs> we don't watch that. It's not not as funny." And I'm like, "Are you serious? It's not as funny." So I kind of felt like the 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 kids I knew who also watched SCTV, I had a, a nice uh, bond with, and uh and and looking back on it, those were. The other weird kids. Yeah, you know, it was not the. Uh, you know, we weren't the normal kids at school, but because we watched right. SCTV.
6: I sometimes I feel like being in Detroit, I get a little bit more of an advantage when it comes to Canadian content because we kind of have it shoved down our throats a little bit. I mean, we've got a lot of Canadian radio stations. We've got Canadian television stations. You know, when people had ABC, NBC, CBS, and then their UHF, we had CBC as well as the other ones. So it was kind of a nice advantage for Detroiters getting some of this Canadian content. That means that when I listen to the radio i would hear a lot of brian adams a lot of alanis morissette that kind of stuff but at the same time it feels like that maybe you know we got a little bit more of the sctv kind of stuff but from what i'm hearing from you guys it sounds like it was out there in the world which makes me
7: really happy first thing that was canadian that i was aware of was uh, sctv but um i definitely discovered stuff i'm up here now and i i love canada um and the first time i i went there i discovered uh tom green when he was on i guess the equivalent of like cable access and it was so out of the ordinary and so stupid but really like 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 you said before like intelligent smart you know um uh and and he hit and then people either got it or they didn't but i remember seeing it before i'd ever seen anything about him I just discovered it by chance and also uh there's some great tv going on here like uh uh, this guy, Ken Finkelsteiner does a show called um, I think it's Newsroom. I think that's what it was called Newsroom. They never make their way to America or if someone doesn't, you know they I remember they were trying to develop that. Uh, it's not the one that's currently on uh, now on HBO. It is a completely different thing. but it was really funny. It had a Larry Sanders uh, sensibility to it and it was very locally oriented, a lot of um, a lot of Canada stuff, which is probably why it didn't translate. But that stuff never bothers. me.
6: Yeah, I was a big fan of. um, I don't know if either of you guys have ever seen this James at fifteen and James at sixteen. Oh yeah, yeah, Yeah.
7: so good. That was so great. (laughs) William Daniels is the dad,
6: and it just felt so much more real than anything was on TV. It wasn't until like my so-called life where I was like, okay, yeah, finally America kind of caught up.
7: Feeling of seeing something that's just for you was a great feeling. Yeah.
6: And it's great that Bob and Doug were kind of a advantage of that whole idea of Canadian content. Apparently, they were – the show SCTV, even though it did have all those in references to Canada, wasn't Canadian enough. So they stuck these two hosers
7: on and just kind
6: of let them
7: riff. They needed to get their money from whatever whoever was funding it, right? Which was – I mean, didn't – I don't know if they still do, but doesn't the state fund the television shows or, or, the, or, or bunch of them or the, maybe the, the – on the local level or city level or something, but that, that show, in order to get the money, they had to have a certain percentage of Canadian content. And I know there's, I'm doing something right now and there has to be a certain percentage of Canadian actors involved, and which is great, I think. You know, it's really good.
6: And that's kind of the way that a lot of that, you know, a lot of folks get to see some of these actors. I mean, having to have that amount of canadian content having to have those canadian actors on there we're going to take a break and play an interview with jeff robbins the author of second city television a history and
9: episode guide My name is Jeff Robbins, and currently I am Executive Director of the Sun Prairie Media Center in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. How did you get turned on to SCTV? My um, first memory of SCTV was watching it in syndication on the local ABC station in Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul, where I'm from. And it was a sketch called The Taxidermist, and it was a movie of the week uh, sketch and it literally scared the hell out of me. It was like a horror movie uh, parody sort of a thing where uh, John Candy played a, a taxidermist, and he brought his new girlfriend over to meet his parents. And of course, his parents, played by Harold Ramis and Andrea Martin, were dead and stuffed. Catherine O'Hara, who was the girlfriend, called the police, and Harold Ramis shows up, and and he's stuffed. You know, he's dead and it just creeped the hell out of me but for some reason i was very intrigued by it and uh, i i was probably 8 years old at the time and it it came on after uh, benny hill uh locally and benny hill's a show that my dad loved and so i just liked hanging out with my dad and hearing hearing him laugh and um so I, I just, uh, started watching SCTV, uh, from then on, and not long after that, it was picked up by NBC and ran after Johnny Carson in the 1130 uh, central time period. And then, oddly enough, my P- local PBS station in Minneapolis started running, um, season three, which is the, uh, season right before the NBC shows. They picked it up and they were running it simultaneously to the NBC, uh, years. So for, Several months, it was just SCTV heaven because they would run season three from Sunday to Thursday, and, I'm sorry, Sunday to Wednesday, and then Friday nights would be the NBC shows. So it was just uh, terrific. Having it in all kinds of channels was great for you. Yeah, and, of course, season three was when... um, Bob and Doug McKenzie were introduced and I remember being very confused because again I was like nine, ten years old and I was very confused because well John Candy is on these episodes but he's not on these episodes and I, I just figured he'd sign some sort of different contract I, you know I thought the episodes were being produced simultaneously and I didn't realize that you know one season was from you know 1980 and one season was was current 1981 because John Candy wasn't on the third season that the PBS station was running so I was very confused but uh I figured it out later. Now, when were you able to see
6: all of the seasons because it sounds like you're kind of hit or miss as far as what you were able to see just depending
9: on what channel and and what agreements were there. Well, yeah, you were right. SCT has always been a very hard show to find and I think that's something that really kind of bonds uh fans together because it's it was it's always been a show that you really had to work at to, to find and even nowadays you can't find it. I mean, it's not on Netflix, it's not on Hulu. I mean, there's some clips on YouTube. Um, and of course all the shows, the NBC shows have been released on DVD but none of the um, well I shouldn't say that, most of these uh, earlier syndicated shows and none of the Cinemax a year are on DVD so it's always been a tough show to find and it continues to this day I was a huge fan of it when it was on NBC and I I would tape every episode of course we're talking VHS at that point and uh, you know just watched and rewatched the shows ad nauseum and then in 1985 the Show went on to um, kind of national syndication, and what they did there was they they left the half hour shows uh, the original well, maybe I should back up. The original three years, the first three years were half-hour episodes, and it went to NBC. They expanded it to 90 minutes. So what they did when they put it in an off-network syndication in 1985 was they left the half-hour shows pretty much as is, but then they you know, re-edited the, uh, the 90-minute shows uh, from NBC. So it really wasn't until 1985 that I was able to see All the episodes, uh, from all the shows and, and that was sort of the basis of my book is, uh, you know, the tapes from those years. And then the fun of it is when the internet came around, um, I was able to get different versions. You know, Canada had some versions uh, that America didn't have, and uh, I would tape, uh, I would trade tapes with with people that i just met on, online from Canada, and we would, uh, you know, compare versions of everything. And and uh, it's it's just been um, it's an interesting show to follow because there's so many different versions, and like I say, it's it's hard to find. So you have to work at it, and I think the fact they have to work at it. Makes it uh, all that uh, more exciting, and 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 uh, makes you appreciate the show that much more.
6: What was it that really kind of drew you into the show? What made it stand out for you?
9: Well, I, I was also a fan of Saturday Night Live at the time, but I think what I appreciated about SCTV was a it was funnier. So that that was that was. An easy one, but there was just something about the cast. You know, everybody seemed like they were talented. There was something about the concept of the show that that drew me in, or you know, or from the get-go. And and for those who don't know, the concept of the show is that SCTV, standing for Second City Television, is a um, home to the cheapest network in the universe. In in a particular episode, you might see. Uh, some programming. You might see some promos. You might see some commercials, just like you would on a regular uh, broadcast station. But as the show evolved and as the show grew to a 90-minute program, uh, and they had obviously more time to film, they could tell stories, they they incorporated what they called a wraparound uh, material. So you got to see kind of what was going on behind the scenes at uh, SETV, and that's where some of the characters, like Guy Caballero, the the station president, and Edith Prickley, the station manager, that's really where their characters uh, got to take center stage, and and uh, that's been some of their most famous and best material. It was in those wraparounds, like the Moral Majority uh, show, where they kind of made fun of. Um, a lot of the parents, television council type groups that were around in the early '80s that were trying to shut down shows like Charlie's Angels and Three's Company and things like that. Uh, they had a great episode uh, dealing with that. That won them the first writing Emmy, and they've had uh, like a, a very extended Godfather parody that w- that was uh, one of their best wraparounds. They did one where. Um, SCTV went on strike, and they had to take a feed from the CBC because they wanted to avoid reruns, and so they did a whole show, you know, really parroting uh, Canadian television, uh, even more so than they already did, because of course the show was uh, can- uh, Canadian in origin. But this really allowed them to really focus in on Canadian television. So that's um, that, that's one of my favorite things about the show is just it just evolved and lets the characters evolve in a way that you know Saturday Night Live never. Uh, did and and frankly, given the uh the production limitations of that show, I uh, really never could when did you decide to start writing about s c t v Well, I decided to start writing about s c t v when I got tired of looking for the book that I wanted to read uh, you know I, I kept thinking, boy, if somebody could just make this uh, make a book about s c t v because as, as I said earlier. The the history of the show was so checkered. I mean, it was on it was on Global TV in Canada for a couple of years. Then it was on CBC. Then it was on NBC. Then it was on Cinemax. There's been different syndicated versions uh, throughout the years, depending on if you lived in Canada or United or the United States. So I just thought it'd be great to sort of pull all that stuff together. And um, what I did in my book is I compared some of the Syndicated stuff, to some of the the network stuff, and sometimes they were edited for syndication for for time reasons, and you know I put all the di- the differences into the book where you, you know, where there were differences, and frankly it was just it was a book that I wanted to read and nobody else was going to write it, so and I had all the material at home, I had all the tapes. So I just decided to write it myself, and and Dave Thomas, who I guess you're going to also be featuring on this uh, episode, so I'm excited about that. He wrote a great book about SCTV a couple years, well about ten years prior to the one that I wrote. Uh, but his obviously was much more about the backstage stuff, and and mine really focused on you know what you see on the air. It's much more of an episode guide.
6: As you mentioned, we're really focusing on Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis, specifically the Bob and Doug characters why do you think of all the characters to kind of hit that those were the characters that kind of transcended the popularity of SCTV and became more well-known than say a guy Caballero or you know the Schmengi brothers?
9: Well, that's easy. I mean, they were the, uh, um, uh, people love dumb humor. People love dumb characters. People love dumb guys because they can feel superior to them. And uh, Bob and Doug McKenzie were by far, I mean SCTV was a show filled with characters that were, May be evil, maybe uh, insecure, uh, maybe um, malicious, cruel. Um, but there weren't a lot of dumb characters on the show. I mean, most of the show, most of the characters on the show uh, had some had some intelligence. And um, Bob and Doug were by far the dumbest characters on the show. And not only that, but SCTV is a very dense show, and it really required the viewers' uh, full attention. And it, re- it required people sometimes to. Know a lot about some very obscure films or TV shows that they were parodying, and I think that's part of why SCTV never reached the heights of a Saturday Night Live. I mean, um, there are parodies like uh, The Nobel, which is a, a parody that uh, uh, takes off a movie called The Oscar, which most people have never heard of. You can't find it anywhere. I had to track down a, a VHS copy of it, um, and it took me a long time, but they just they would parody things that people had never heard of. So it's SCTV was never a very accessible show, except for some of the characters like Guy Caballero, like Ian Frickley, like the Spangy brothers, and especially um, Bob and Doug. I mean, there they was two guys. They were sitting in front of a, a map of Canada. They were drinking beers. They were eating back bacon. They were smoking cigarettes. You could understand who they were immediately. There was nothing you had to think about. There was no frame of reference that you had to come from. They were just funny guys. So what's the thing that finally kind of says,
6: okay... I'm going to write this book. I'm going to, you know, do the whole book proposal, all this kind of thing. What, what was the tipping point for that?
9: I was in a bookstore one day, a Barnes and Noble, and I found a book on laughing that was really sort of the kind of book I wanted to write about SCTV. And I, I, I looked to see who published it. It was a publishing company called McFarlane and Company out of North Carolina. And I said, if they publish a book like this on laughing, why wouldn't they publish a book like this on SCTV? So I went home and I wrote a uh, an introduction and a sample chapter and um, submitted it to them, and they were a little bit concerned about uh, copyright infringement. I think somebody had just written a book about Seinfeld uh, and um, was sued because they had done certain proprietary things with the characters, had maybe taken some of the characters and put them in situations uh, that were unique that hadn't been created by Jerry Jerry Seinfeld or Larry David, and I had to assure the folks at SCTV in the Second City that I was only going to be dealing with material that they had already created, and uh, eventually I got a very nice letter from the Second City, telling me that they, you know, were behind the project and they were giving their blessing. And um, finally, I went forward with the book with with uh, McFarland. And so it was a long process. I mean, I I, uh, watched a lot of, I watched all the shows again, took a lot of notes, watched a lot of uh, things that were being parodied, so I could, you know, understand the differences between the source material and and the parody. And, uh, it was really a labor of love, I mean, but, uh, but again, it was, it was hard to, con- it's hard to complain about something, you know, when you're, just, you're at home watching your favorite show and it's you know night after night after night and and my wife was very uh sympathetic and and very understanding and it was uh it was an interesting process and uh, i'm really uh proud of the of the finished work for me i
6: think i understand most of the humor but there are still some dense canadian jokes that just go right over my head how how was that trying to find those for you
9: yeah, that was the biggest challenge was was locating some of the source material because it wasn't like they were. I mean, I remember John Candy once on on uh, David Letterman said something about TV is so bad, and of course he was he's talking about TV, you know, thirty. This is thirty years ago, so imagine what you know he might say about it today. But he was saying, you know, TV is so bad now that we we can't parody. Current television because it's already a parody of itself, and he was referencing. He, I guess they tried to shoot like a show, like a parody of *Laverne and Shirley*, and it was like it just looked like the real thing. So, what are we going to do with that? So, the fact that they parodied stuff that was just so uh, obscure and so hard to find, again, I think that sort of limited its mass appeal. But also, in the in the situation of writing this sort of book, it it, um, it wasn't like he could just. Uh, you know, download an episode of Welcome Back Hotter and say, okay, well, this is what Welcome Back Hotter is, and what do they do with it? I mean, you really had to go out of your way and, and uh, find some obscure Canadian movies on eBay. Um, there was, like I say, a movie called The Oscar. There was this Canadian hockey movie called Power Play. There was um, this uh, movie called I Was a Teenage Werewolf. There was something called South Sea Sinner with Shelley Winters that I had a hard time finding. It's just... Um, that was the biggest uh, challenge in writing the book was just, just finding the stuff that they were making fun of.
6: Not only are you going to tell everything that's on the episode, but you're going to try to give like the backstory to some of the jokes, which I find very admirable.
9: Well, I don't think you can really uh, write about something unless you, I mean, it's so cliche, you got to, you write what you know. So how can you really write about a parody of something unless you um, know what they're parodying? So you can, so you can label it a successful parody or not. I mean, the book is a critical book, and if it was something that I didn't like or didn't think that they succeeded at, I tried to point that out. So I can't say that this parody didn't work if I hadn't seen what was being parodied. So that was part of the job as far as I could tell.
6: Now, had you written anything like this beforehand?
9: This is my first and only book uh, I, when I started this book i didn't have any children now I have two children and I'm finding you know the time um, much more difficult much more difficult to uh to locate so I'd love to do something um perhaps on david Letterman uh, in the future but that's a, that's a huge project. He's been on for 30 years. So, uh, you know, the, the, you obviously can't do an episode guide on that, but um, that would be the, the, the next challenge I'd like to, uh, to to tackle if possible.
6: Were there any problems finding any of the original episodes themselves, or had you already found those, and it was just a matter of finding more of the movies and TV shows that they were parroting?
9: I state in the book, I think pretty clearly, that there were two sketches that I could not find. And uh, after writing the book, uh, somebody did post one of the sketches on YouTube, and I don't know where they found it because I thought I was very thorough in my in my in my research before you know, I went ahead and had the book published. One is a dog food parody commercial, which I, I don't know why it never apparently never saw the light of day it was taken out of rotation. The other uh, sketch was called Family Crisis Game Show, and it was a sketch. Um, and I, I don't know if you, if you can find it on YouTube if if they've had it removed um but it was a very dark sketch kind of making fun of domestic abuse and you know some of these things you know that I'm, I'm assuming that somebody just looked at this, you know, uh, in the more current time and just said, "Boy, this is an horrendous taste. We just can't have this out there." So it was um, it was taken out of rotation. So those are the only two sketches that, at the time of the book, I hadn't seen. I still haven't seen the dog food parody commercial. I have no idea what that's about. Um, but uh, I have uh, finally seen the Family Crisis Game Show. But uh, uh, other than that, I think there's 135 episodes. Uh, like I say, there's multiple versions of some of them. Uh, I think I've seen them all and um, have a pretty healthy collection at home. Did you do much research on The
6: Great White North and um, Strange Brew while you were doing this?
9: Yeah, I looked into... I mean, uh, the funny thing about The Great White North and, and Bob and Doug McKenzie, um, as a kid, that was one of the things that you know I could latch onto right away. Some of the stuff that Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas did and certainly the the other cast members... I don't really know why I found it funny at nine years old because I didn't know what they were... I didn't know... Uh, how good Dave Thomas's impression was of Bob Hope or how good Rick Moranis' Woody Allen was because I didn't know who Woody Allen and Bob Hope were. So I don't know what attracted me to those types of sketches or, or when the other Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas, uh, partnership that worked so well was their David Brinkley and Walter Cronkite. I, I don't know why I found that funny not having any idea who those characters, who those people were. But Bob and Doug, you know, I, I loved from the get-go. I, um, so my relationship with them, if you can call it a relationship, that sounds weird, but that goes way back. You know, I, I, one of the best Christmas presents I ever got was when I got their record album, probably in the uh, Christmas of 1981. I had this was before the internet. I was nine years old. I had no idea the album was coming out. I opened up this box at Christmas, you know, Christmas morning, and there's this Mackenzie record there. I had no idea they were doing a record, so it was just like the greatest thing ever. Yeah, it's the same. It was the same thing with the movie. I mean, this is before you knew a month out, you know. And he, Entertainment Weekly is publishing their movie calendar, so you know exactly the release date of all the movies. I remember when first seeing a commercial for Strange Brew on TV, and I was like, "Oh my God, this it's you know it's happening. They're doing a Bob and Doug movie." I was th- more thrilled than you know anybody should be about such a thing. But um, but yeah, I mean, Bob and Doug, um, they were obviously in every episode in the third season, which was Rick Moranis' first season, and then as SCTV did with a lot of their characters, they evolved Bob and Doug as much as they could be evolved. I mean, they were always dumb characters, but uh, they put them in some uh, tremendous situations in the show, and I think one of the, the, the best thing that Bob and Doug, the most interesting, the most funny um, Bob and Doug material that exists is one of the uh, SCTV 90-minute episodes that directly uh, comments on the fact that Bob and Doug were becoming so popular and that uh, the other cast members, John Candy, Eugene, Levy, Catherine O'Hara, were pissed. I mean they were upset that they were being sort of overshadowed by these characters that even Eric Maris and Dave Thomas admitted were not their best characters, not their best work. They just happened to catch on and they, you know, they claimed to not be able to understand it, but they were, you know, they were following the the public demand and NBC was following the public demand and sort of demanding more Bob and Doug material. So they did a whole ninety minute show where uh Guy Caballero, the president of the network, said we're, we want more Bob and Doug, and they and they he canceled all these other shows and just put Bob and Doug on, and they he was going to premiere him with this, you know, extravagant special, this comedy variety special, and of course they go out there and they can't read the cue cards and they can't perform in the sketches with Joyce Dewitt and Morgan Fairchild, who you know were it was like a parody of um, the Festrong Brothers, Steve Martin and Dan Aykroyd's character. They put Bob and Doug in in, in those characters, and that was uh, hilarious. Um, so it was, but it was a really interesting commentary on the rise of Bob and Doug, and a, kind of an interesting commentary on, sort of, the limitations of those characters. I thought because they they were pushed beyond what they were really capable of, and at the end of the show, they're sort of sitting there on their set, and you know, their old Great White North set, and they're just sort of broken down. And uh, I guess we really screwed up our opportunity, and then. You know it kind of ends on a high note because Tony Bennett, who's the guest star for the episode, comes in and kinda of has a beer with him and sings a song uh so you know it ends on uh, on a good note and of course Bob and doug were would were would go on and and do strange brew and and enjoy success afterwards but uh I really think that um, strange brew it's, it's a it's a funny movie there's a lot of good things to like about that movie, especially the first half of it but uh if anybody is interested in the in the Bob and Doug characters. Uh, I would certainly recommend um, tracking down season three on uh, on DVD that uh, that has that particular Bob and Doug episode that I was just talking about.
6: When it came to your research and kind of what you covered in the book. How far outside of the realm of SCTV did you go? I mean, did you talk about The Last Polka or The Enigma of Bobby Bittman, the uh, Ed Grimley animated show, or were you pretty much just focused on TV show proper?
9: Either you're a very big fan or you've done some really good research, because those are a couple of obscure shows that you mentioned. Uh, the The Enigma of Bobby Bittman, um, yeah, somebody that was like a Cinemax comedy experiment, and somebody mailed that to me uh, one time. Uh, very, very funny show, very dark uh, show, but very funny. Um, I didn't go too much about too much uh, into those uh, side projects in, in the book. Uh, I believe they're mentioned in there. Um, in a lot of cases, they are um, sort of the inevitable sort of. Wrapping up of some of these characters, I mean, The Last Polka certainly talks about, you know, the Schmange brothers kind of, you know, wrapping up their career. Um, The Enigma of Bobby Bittman kind of is a biography of his that uh, I don't know that Eugene Levy ever uh, did that character again. So it's it's sort of a, a good close for him um and there you know there was a time in the in the early I'm sorry in the mid 80s when all those SCTV uh, cast members were doing Showtime uh specials Cinemax Specials HBO specials certainly Martin Short did a couple of really successful ones um and I didn't go too far into those I really try to keep it uh try to keep it with SCTV but uh certainly there's um a lot of material out there again hard to find but if anybody's interested in SCTV there's some some good specials to try to track down because they took a lot of the same characters and a lot of the same imp- impressions and worked with a lot of the same writers and directors and producers and makeup people. I and mean, the show really, uh, it's a, it's a hoary cliche, but the show really, I think, had a, a good family uh, behind it. And um, that family was sort of, traipsed around to all these various specials that they did.
6: Did you look at the new show, the Dave Thomas thing that he did? Did he do that with Lauren Michaels?
9: I didn't look at the new show because the new show is nowhere to be found. Uh, I did watch the new show when it was originally on. I believe that came out, I want to say it was on the same year that SNL was doing their, sort of their all-star year where they had Billy Crystal and, and Martin Short and Christopher Guest. I think it was around that same time that, uh, Lauren Michaels put together the new show. And, uh, cause then right after that, he went out, he went back to SNL, but, um, yeah, the new show had Dave Thomas every week. He was a regular. It had, um, Catherine O'Hara, John Candy fairly frequently. I don't remember Robin Duke during that show. I don't remember Tony Rosado uh, Joe Flair and Eugene Levy were probably not big enough names, quote unquote, to really, Highlight uh, on that show. That was a primetime Friday night, ten o'clock show. So they were, you know, they were looking for names. You know, the new show I think would be an interesting. I'm sure there's music rights and things like that that are preventing it from being released on video, or maybe. Uh, I mean there's people that just aren't happy with it and don't want it to see the light of day. But there were I remember that show being pretty good. There were, you know, Steve Martin did a hilarious um, parody of Michael Jackson and John Candy did this one sketch where he was a food repair man, like people would bring in uh foods, you know, that somehow were in, you know, were uh imperfect imperfected through some sort of silly accident and and he would uh work on, you know, repairing the foods. It's so just random memories that I have of, of those shows. Um so there definitely is an S C T V connection um through through that with uh especially Dave Thomas and John Candy and Catherine O'Hara who were on quite frequently, but um uh I didn't go too much into that in in the book. I mean there's you, you could really kinda go down a road that I wasn't prepared to go down. You know, I mean obviously there's a overlap between S C T V and i T V I'm sorry, S C T V and Saturday Night Live. Um Robin Duke and Tony Rosado were on a year, Catherine O'Hara was going to be on it, but then she got freaked out on Michael O'Donohue and, and decided to go back to SCTV. Dick Ebersole tried to hire John Candy for, SC, for SNL and he eventually stayed with SCTV. Obviously Martin Short did a year. There's any number of, um, of crossovers that you could really, there's probably another book there to, to discuss all the S. C T V crossovers and other projects, not to mention all the movies that you know, a lot of the cast members did together.
6: I have to know the story about her being freaked out by Michael Donahue.
9: The story, um, as I know it, is, um, this is when S C T V was, uh, this is, okay, so Gene Dumanian got fired um, from season six of Saturday Night Live and they brought Dick Ebersole in and they wanted to create a connection with the old SNL, so they brought in Michael O'Donohue. And, um, one of the things they did was they fired a lot of the cast members, you know, with good reason and they hired a bunch and they were trying to, they specifically wanted to hire John Candy and Catherine O'Hara and John Candy apparently was very conflicted about it and eventually, um, went to SCTV, which at the time was also, was, was just starting up on NBC. So that, you know, it was just kind of kicking back into production after being, uh, off for a year. So they succeeded in hiring Catherine O'Hare, which was one of their big wants and um she went to like her first production meeting and and Michael O'Donoghue got up and said you all suck you're all shit i hate all of you because he had been watching the show and the show was complete shit and then he said to you and he talked you know looked at Eddie Murphy and said you're pretty good um but the rest of you are terrible you all suck and this is what the show needs and he tried and he took out a can of spray paint and and spray painted the word danger on the wall and um you know, I, I, the story is that Catherine Herridge just, you know, was very like shell shocked from this meeting. It was just like I cannot work with such a bizarre gonzo person, and she just, you know, hightailed it out of there and and joined the NBC version of SCTV, which, as I said, was just starting up at the time. So she actually never appeared as a cast member. She certainly has hosted a couple, two or three times, but um, she never appeared as a cast member because of her. Response to Michael O'Donohue, and he Michael O'Donohue flamed out on that show pretty quickly. I mean, other people couldn't put up with him either. Did you ever track down the um,
6: Saturday Night Live that Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas hosted?
9: Yes, uh, that's available on Netflix. At least uh, a good majority of it is available on Netflix, so you you can see that. I mean, that's that's an interesting show. I mean, they they pull out a lot of the uh, they do Bob they do Bob Hope and Woody Allen. I think. I think they might do their Angus crock and um rabbi um stuff on there um but of course they they do the monologue as bob and Doug and uh uh you know it's it's very funny it's it's a lot of the same jokes that they did on s e t v but uh it's it's really it's really a period of its time i mean when you when you look at kind of um, Bob and Doug's sort of faded away pretty quickly after strange brew. So, um, it's interesting to go back and watch the, watch the, you know that Saturday Night live, or any Saturday Night live from that period, because it's like, you know, Eddie Murphy was so young and, and raw and awesome. And, you know, Joe Piscopo was hilarious. And who knew that Joe Piscopo would just turn out to be just a complete worthless person, uh, you know, after, you know, a couple of years of SNL, cause he actually was very good on SNL. So, it's just uh, those those early 80s uh, Saturday of Live's, I think, are very interesting.
6: Where did the Jerry Todd character come from? Did you find out kind of his backstory?
9: Well, Rick Moranis was a DJ before he came to SCTV, and uh, he was the only member of SCTV to never actually be on the Second City stage. I mean, most of them came from either the Chicago stage or the Toronto stage. Um, Even Robin Duke and Tony Rosado and some of these lesser uh, cast members were from Second City. But uh, somehow, Dave Thomas tracked down Rick Moranis and and, um, brought him into the show, even though he had never done a CTV. And I think that was something that a lot of people resented, particularly Joe Flaherty uh, resented, the fact that somebody was being kind of brought in kind of outside the fold, but Rick Moranis was just so awesome from the get-go that, you know, any qualms about him quickly disappeared. But yeah, but I think uh, that was just around the time that music videos were starting up and um, Rick Moranis was a musician. He uh, had a lot of interest in, in technology. He was a very, he was a kind of a geeky, geeky kind of a guy. I mean, a lot of his, Sketches. If you go through SCTV and watch some of his sketches, they seem like they always have a bank of monitors in the back, or they're about uh, computers, or they're about some sort of you know audio or video technology. Which of course now seems very primitive, but at the time a lot of the jokes were about how cutting edge they were. So yeah, so he he took this, uh, he took his DJ background, he took his love of technology and video, and just sort of created this bizarre uh, pre-MTV sort of thing I mean because that Jerry Todd show existed prior to MTV I mean MTV started in August of 81 and um I think the first Jerry Todd sketch he did was in May of 81 so it, it predated it by a few months but of course there were there were music videos uh, around uh, before MTV otherwise MTV would have would have had nothing to run when it premiered so um that's 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 what I know about Jerry Todd it's just it took a lot of Rick Moranis's skills and interests, and, and created a very uh, a unique character.
6: What was the story with Harold Ramis? Why was he on there just the one season?
9: Harold Ramis was one of the people that was in the discussions on the very evolution of SCTV, or the very origins of SCTV, I should say. I mean, when SCTV was created... um Lauren Michaels had just come in and sort of pilfered John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd and Yilda Radner from Second City. Belushi was in Chicago and Aykroyd and Radner were in Toronto. And a lot of the people that were left, like Flaherty, like Harold Ramis, who had been at Second City for quite a while, uh, felt a little left out and were like, well, we... We have some talent. We could do a TV show, and they really felt that way when when SNL premiered, and it was it wasn't a huge hit right away, but it certainly had left a cultural uh, mark. It was uh, something that people were really talking about from the from the very beginning. So uh, it was Harold Ramis, it was Joe Flaherty, it was Andrew Alexander who owned um, Second City Toronto. It was a guy by the name of Sheldon Patinkin, who actually wrote the uh, foreword for my book. I was very grateful uh, to him for that. I believe he's since passed away. Um, and I think maybe Bernard Salins was in those early discussions, but uh, it was a, it was a core group of people from the second city. And um, Harold Ramis was was a little bit older, I think, than most of the uh, the other cast members. They looked up to him a little bit more. He was uh, seen by everybody as a very talented writer, and he was uh, sort of the unanimous choice to be the head writer. If you look if you look at back at those first season shows. He sort of stands out in that he's not really a very good actor, I would say. He certainly was not a, a, as good an impressionist as the rest of the cast. I mean, a lot of the sketches he was in, he he played a character called Mo Green, who was the precursor to Edith Prickley, who was SCTV's first station manager. But it was sort of like Chevy Chase's Gerald Ford. I mean, he just was Harold Ramis with a different name. You know, He didn't adapt any sort of different look or different, um, a different accent. He was just Harold Ramis, but they called him Mo Green. So he wasn't uh, as much of an actor, but he was a, obviously a tremendous writer. And he really led the show for that first year. And um, after the first year aired, they started writing material for the second year and he got an offer to do animal house. And, uh, obviously he wasn't making much money doing this show on Canadian television that had yet to be syndicated to the United States. So uh, I'm sure that whatever money he was getting paid to to do animal house was uh, a lot more money than he was making for, for SETV. And, uh, you know, he knew Belushi and he knew some of the people, so he knew it was going to be a good project. And, he went off to do Animal House, and the rest of the cast uh, obviously stayed behind. So, yeah, Harold Ramis is the, kind of the Chevy Chase of SCTV. He did the one season, and um, uh, a lot of the material that he wrote was present in the second season. But, uh, yeah, he was just on the one season and Hollywood Called, and uh, the rest is history. Again, it's kind of a statistical thing. I mean, Chevy Chase was great on that first year of SNL, and, and uh, he really was the... Um, the guy that broke out, um, for many reasons. One reason was, you know, he did Weekend Update as himself, he gave his name every week, he was Gerald Ford as himself. Kildramus was uh nothing like that. I mean he was probably the least talented cast member, but he as far as uh, acting, but he you know, he was a great writer and the show really sort of struggled for a while after he left. I mean there's some pretty weak episodes in the show's second season I think after they ran out a lot of the material that he had helped to write and then the show really bounced back uh, very strong in its third season. That's my particular favorite era of SCTV Um, and a lot of that is thanks to Rick Moranis and, and the chemistry that he uh, formed with Dave Thomas. I mean, they, they really carried the show in that third season. So how has the book been received? Well, the book's been out for a while. It's not a new book. So, I mean, um, any, any reviews I've gotten of the, sh- of the book have been very positive, um, both from, you know, professional viewers and just, you know, fans of the show that, you know, have gotten hold of me on, uh, various message groups or, uh, news groups or things like that. Um, I haven't heard from anybody you know on the show, which I guess you know shouldn't surprise me you know they've they've all you know moved on and you know we're talking about a show that that aired its last episode thirty years ago, so you know they've all most of them have gone on to to i wouldn't say bigger and better things, but you know most of them all have really nice careers still going even though they're all getting up their in age but yeah i've I've had uh, very good responses from uh about the book and um you know, people people do things sort of for themselves. And like I think I emailed you, if I have a question about something on SCTV, I look at my own book and, you know, it still kind of blows my mind that, you know, I wrote what I consider to be the definitive reference guide to what I consider to be the best show ever to be on television, um, and that sounds enormously arrogant, but, I mean, that's that's sort of what I take pride in.
6: Of all the skits and the characters and everything, what's your favorite from SCTV? What do you go back to?
9: Well, like I said, that third season is probably um, the best season. I mean, my favorite characters are probably the Bobby Bittman and uh, John LeRue characters. I mean, I just think Eugene Levy and, and John Candy did amazing things with those characters, and like i said SCTV allowed those characters to evolve and to put them into all sorts of uh different um different situations you know from being uh you know bobby bitumen was a, was a was a terrible vegas comic and then he did a remake of on the waterfront called on the waterfront again and then he uh you know directed a, a film called funny stuff which is really a, a sort of a parody of uh, jerry lewis becoming you know this a sort of wacky comedian turned serious actor, um, kind of a, a, a little bit of a parody of the day of the the day of the clown cried, which of course has never been released. But um, those are probably my two favorite characters uh, throughout CTV's history. There are some other sort of one off characters that I love. Uh, Eugene Levy did this hilarious host of a music dance show, um, Rock and Mel Slurp, which I always thought was funny. Um, but as far as one particular sketch, that's that's that'd be pretty tough to name. I mean, there's just so many good ones and some of them are, you know, involve Bob and Doug. I mean, the one, the one storyline that I was talking about earlier, I, I have a particular fondness for because not only is it hilarious, uh, but it just, it, it just brings out the backstage, um, things going on at SCTV really, I think, wickedly brilliant, brilliantly. Well, hey, where's the best place
6: for people to pick up the book or to learn about you?
9: Best place for people to pick up the book is uh, Amazon.com. I mean, it's, it's there. They've always got it in stock. They can get it on paperback. You can get it on your Kindle. Uh, I think people would be hard-pressed to find it in bookstores at this point, but uh, it's definitely on Amazon. What are these things you call bookstores? Exactly. If you can find a bookstore, chances are... <laughs> Are are pretty low that you'll find my book in such a thing called the bookstore. But uh, yeah, I not that they need the money, but uh, Amazon.com is really the the place to go, or Amazon.ca if you're you know one of your one of our Canadian friends listening in, which I guess is appropriate for what we're talking about. Well, as I was saying,
5: Tony, uh, I think you're going to enjoy working with these McKenzie boys.
4: Well, you know, I've heard a lot about them. In fact, I just came back from a concert tour of the Soviet Union, and they ran a four-page spread on them in Pravda. Really. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Tony, they
4: are big,
5: real big. <laughs> Live from the SCTV studios in Mellonville we are proud to present the great White North Palace. Starring Bob and Duck McKenzie With Bob and Duck's guest, Morgan Fairchild. Joyce to win special guest star, Tony Bennett. And featuring the great white orchestra under the direction of Don Costa. And now, the great white dancers. Start the music,
3: it's a great white dog fight tonight. Teas us on and off, it's a star-filled morning.
5: show, Bob and Dutch McKenzie!
1: Hey, Where are you? Down here, eh? Where you're supposed to be. No, you're supposed to be up here. Take off. No, look, you're supposed to be down in the hallway. No way, eh? This is where the camera is. This is where you're supposed to be. Good day. No, I'm Dutch. No. Bob, good day. No, well, you're not supposed to say Bob. That's your name, eh? <laughs> then you say what's written under it. Oh, go. Good day. Welcome to Great White North Palace. I'm Bob. And I'm Doug. And we got a great show tonight. Hey, Bob. Go. What? Sure. You keep going. <laughs> oh. hey, hey, Bob. What do you think about having your very uh, Our. first... What? Hour. You said your... So you said Y-O-U-R, it's just O... Go back the car yeah,
3: back before, up, eh?
1: You up. said O-U... See, it's O-U-R. our <laughs> it variety. is O-U-R. Sorry, eh? Okay. Our very uh, first n- uh, network uh, variety show, eh? Oh, uh, oh, I'm just thrilled. Say, Doug, uh, did you see Morgan Fairchild backstage? What? Go. Oh. Yeah, she's oh, a beauty. Where? Yeah, she's a beauty. Oh. Oh. Uh did you see morgan fairchild backstage geez i got a thread right here
2: you do yeah take it out Abe. Eh? you know what the audience to see it i think you're a hoser go where
1: did you see morgan fairchild backstage i just said that line, no but eh? it's the, oh geez i so um, you say
5: yeah no but i'm black eh? those I'm hosers lo- no, it's marco a sh- sorry. Call up the studio. Have him get Tony Bennett on the air right away. You're not. Go ahead. Okay, I'll do do all live.
6: All right, we are back. Thanks to Jeff Robbins for coming on and giving us some background to SCTV. We have a link over to where you can pick up his book, Second City Television, A History and Episode Guide, over at our website, projection-booth.com. Now, getting back to it, you know, I will admit that it took me... Years and years before I realized that there's some Hamlet stuff going on in
8: Strange Brew. Am I the only one? I saw Strange Brew before I read Hamlet. So senior year of high school, sitting in English class reading Hamlet, and it starts hitting me. Like, wait a minute, this is Strange Brew. <laughs> and then I, I couldn't believe all the uh, the similarities. I, and I had to see Strange Brew. again. of course, at that time, I don't think you could get it on VHS yet. So it was still a few years before I was able to watch it again. But, you know, after reading Hamlet and going back and watching Strange Brew, I'm like, wow, this is even like I was saying about the, the intelligence to the stupidity. The fact that this stupid movie is basically a remake of Hamlet just made me like it even more. Am I mistaken? Did Max von Sydow play Hamlet and a film version of it? Am I, am I you know, I'm not sure if he
7: ever did. Or a some version of it.
6: At the time, of course, I knew him as Ming the Merciless. But as the years went on, going into film school and seeing all the Bergman films, it's like, oh, look at This guy's been in other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> He wasn't just in uh, what? Oh God, he was in some great movies back in the '70s. He wasn't just in Victory with uh, Stallone and Michael Caine. He was in other things. Yeah.
7: Oh, he's excellent. He was in all the yeah, all the Bergman movies and all the and what was it? What was the was it Crimes and Misdemeanors was there, No, not Crimes of Misdemeanors um, uh, Hannah and her, and her Sisters. Yeah, he was great oh, in that. Oh awesome. my gosh,
6: Craig, as a newbie to this one, did you pick up on the Hamlet stuff right away?
7: I was aware going in that there was a little that there was going to be some Hamlet stuff. I, I, I think the Elsinore thing probably would have tipped me off, uh, but like I said, I did I did some reading afterwards, and I, I think it was an idea that was abandoned because they got a first draft and it was a little too out there, and it stuck too closely to the Hamlet story. But I, but I got like the, all the stuff. Um, I didn't get the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern thing. I wasn't. I, I did. I can see where that would have been really funny, and I also love the idea that they went with Hamlet, because it's just so, it's just so the opposite of what, you you know, you would have expected, but these are really smart, well-schooled guys. But Shakespeare, there's plenty of low humor in Shakespeare, there's plenty of people hitting people over the head, and mistaken identities, and all that stuff, you know, funny's funny. I also think, you know, uh, taste is taste, like, the, there's some, you know, you know, I had some pretty strong opinions about this film, but as you no, Mike, and we had a long conversation about this, one of my favorite movies is one of the worst movies, as far as anybody's concerned, is, has it, that's ever been made. And it was tucked away for 20 years and then they people discovered it and go, boy, we should have, should have stayed tucked away, which was Head by the Monkees. But the, I have such affection for... I can't separate my affection for the band and, and the nostalgia that I feel for it. People could explain to me how it's a horrible movie and I could agree with them, but I still... The idea of it gives me such a buzz... And, and the experience of them as, as a group and what they've done with themselves. So it's I totally get that somebody could see this movie and love it. I read the reviews on Amazon, I, and I, I could not find a negative review. I couldn't find anything. People just love it, and I, I think that's great. I, I thought I was going nuts. It was like a weird <laughs> Hitchcock movie about whatever it's I mean it was it was really strange because I, I think I found a few like there was one mother's that I bought this for my husband and my son and they loved it and I just stand in the kitchen something like that I relate to you know a middle-aged woman standing in a kitchen
6: I will admit that when I was 11 years old this movie was a lot funnier than when I'm 42 years old <laughs> so watching it again yesterday I mean, I watched this again probably about four weeks ago and was just really into it and remembering the lines and all this, which was great because I hadn't seen it in forever. And then, and I loved it then. And then just watching it again last night, I was like, Yeah. Yeah. This really doesn't do a whole lot for me. Sometimes I really like some of the aspects to it. And then others are just kind of misses at times. Well, I mean, let's start off. We talk about how this is kind of based on Hamlet and it's so loose of an adaptation. It's not even funny. Pretty much for me. The biggest thing is just the whole idea of uh, we've got the Elsinore family, and the father is murdered, and we've got the daughter who comes back from school, you know, Pam instead of Hamlet. You know, it (laughs) it took me a while to get that one, too. I didn't get that. and we've got Uncle Claude versus Uncle Claudius, and um, he marries the mother who we barely see in the film. I think she only has one scene in the film, and Claude is really kind of just a puppet, unfortunately, and he's played by Paul Dooley with these amazing eyebrows. I'm not sure what's going on with those eyebrows in this, but Paul Dooley, who is a fantastic actor, he's been in a lot of my favorite films. If folks don't recognize him, he was in a bunch of Altman films. Some of the the middle period Altman and he was the father in Breaking Away. He's been in just a whole bunch of stuff. And he is, um, even though you would think he would be the dastardly one, he's kind of this puppet to Brewmeister Smith, who's played by Max von Sydow. And Smith has this whole plan of putting stuff in the beer that they make at the brewery and kind of controlling people with that. And I was really – the more I think about it – and I I probably shouldn't think too hard about this movie. But the more I thought about it, the more I was trying to figure out exactly what he was trying to do and how hockey comes into it.
7: (laughs) Yeah. And futuristic hockey robot outfits or whatever they were. I mean, I know all it was a Star Wars now too, right? Oh yeah,
6: all control through an organ and stuff. Right. And right, I'm like, so is the is he going to have an organ that plays music for the world? Because eventually he wants this beer to get to Oktoberfest, so that the entire world will bow to Brewmeister Smith somehow. And yeah, that didn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense.
7: Also, not that I want to connect the dots, but what about people who don't drink beer? That's your net sort of natural opposition. But I, this is Canada we're talking. Well, about. that is true. They're, they don't exist. Anymore. That's right.
6: I will say that when I was a kid, I was really kind of—I was scarred by this movie. At one point, the whole scene where uh, Bob and Doug catch their parents in the carnal
8: act. Um, oh, that was hilarious! <laughs> Jesus, that was great. That was a and, it, good shot. and it's them. It's them and the parents. But it's isn't it like Mel Blanc's voice? Yes. Yeah, which is
7: just bizarre. Yes. <laughs> that was really funny.
6: Yeah, and their dog Hosehead, who looks like a skunk, and he's not very nice.
8: No, I, I love that that shot where where Hosehead looks at them and sees the giant pieces of steak.
6: I was trying to connect some of the other dots because Bob and Doug are this kind of Rosencrantz and Guilderson thing where they you know are his friends, even though he's they've never met Pam before. But they're these kind of dupuses that kind of come in and. I was trying to figure out who some of the other characters were, like uh, Jean LaRose. Um, he's not Ophelia. You know, If we were going to do a one-to-one, Rosie would be Ophelia, but it's not the case. And then the other guy, what's his name? Henry Green, played by Douglas Campbell, who's kind of uh, Pam's friend, kind of her mentor was the character. Roles in
7: Granson, Guildenstern, Rosie. But, I, but I'm confusing myself, because that, that was supposed to be those guys. Doppelganger Rose Grant
6: like I said, I really shouldn 't scratch too deep on the surface of this film. The thing that I liked though I, I would say probably my favorite bit of the entire film. Is well, I love the way that they play with we're watching a movie and starting off watching the movie and then cutting out into the theater, and then that becomes the movie, and then the the really <laughs> sad scene when we think that Bob and Doug are dead, and they p- break in with that intermission and that right.
8: did Monty Python also do that, and like Holy Grail or one of one of those they films. did
7: yeah. they did. I was buckling up and hoping the whole movie was going to be like that because uh, that was sort of honestly what I was sort of expecting was it was going to be this um, this meta, you know, roller coaster ride. And you just didn't. And, you know, um, and it didn't go that way. And it felt kind of tacked on. I mean, they did that thing at the end, but there was they never it's kind of fudges with reality a little bit. But that's cool. But at least. It kind of needs to be consistent, you know? Um, I mean, it doesn't need to be, but it didn't make any sense to me. It was kind of unsatisfying. And Where I kind of felt like it was going to, uh-oh, that, that moment where it was kind of losing me was, you know, there's a moment where they're trying to get into the brewery, and out of nowhere, Dave Thomas pulls a pristine donut, you know, for the secretary, the overweight secretary, and yeah. I just thought, oh, no. Well, it said a, a couple of things. First of all, I don't know why it would have been funny if it was a crumpled up messy donut as if he had been carrying it around in case you need to bribe somebody. But because it wasn't, I just thought, oh, we're in kind of a cartoon reality, which means they're going to be perfectly safe. And um, and the bad guys are we're also kind of goofballs, you know, Um and which means there's no real consequence, there's no real danger. So, if you're not a, which means the jokes, it's just going to be a movie about jokes, and so the jokes, have, like Airplane, where there's no you know nothing bad is going to happen. So it has to just be jokes. And that was where it kind of left me. And I, I wondered if it was just a matter of taste, you know, that I have like Cheech Chong, I never really got it for Cheech and Chong, other than the records a couple of times, but I wasn't a big fan of the movies, but I was never you know, a pothead, and I drank beer, certainly, but but not so much that I would, would call myself Canadian. And uh, <laughs> I never went Canadian. I'm not a Canadian. So I, I wonder if I was just fell through the cracks audience-wise because uh, that happened pretty early on. And I'm usually not a stickler. If something's funny, it's funny. But I was trying to figure out why it wasn't to me. That was, that was the moment where I went, uh-oh. That donut was a jelly. Well, that's funny.
6: I really, I can't defend this movie.
7: I mean, I, I <laughs> totally see everything that you're saying. But why should you have to if you enjoy? it? That's what I said about that movie ahead Like, I, I could explain to you why it's a bad movie. I, I think I could probably teach a course on why it's a bad movie, and I love it. And it's, it's unwatchable. So. I, I love it, too. I watch it all the time. Yeah, yeah me, too. Well, that's great. Oh, my God. You guys are my best friends. <laughs> I found you. Yeah, we we are all on board when it comes to, to Head. Yeah. But do you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure you've spoken to people who, and I, I listen you know, to the podcast, too. Like, uh, I, there are plenty of people who disagree, but who cares? If, and if something makes you laugh, like, I, you know, there are comics who make me laugh who don't, you know, they're not. And it's and it did become vogue for a long time to like not laugh at Jerry Lewis to sort of laugh at him. Never went there. Always thought I can do. He's he's complicated. He's like the Richard Nixon of comedy to me. He's dark, and there is that aspect. But he also just makes me laugh like the early stuff. And who I don't want somebody to explain to me why he, he doesn't make me laugh. He does. So why you know if you like that's what's so funny about this is it, it's comedy and it's and it's like musical taster or, or taste taste. You like a dish. Someone else doesn't like it, and then someone explains to you why you should not like it. I don't know. Like I, my opinions, I feel I can back my opinions up, but they're only my opinions. Like I, another thing about this that 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 I found uh, frustrating was, like Holy Grail. Oh, why wasn't this like the SCTV Holy Grail? Because for my money, these two guys were like the thinnest characters. You know, they were sketch they were sketch characters, and it was just like it was Canadian content and all that. And I never connected with it, but this was certainly enough of a story that I, I was like, why want like when the Oktoberfest thing came at the end, why wasn't that the Schmengis? Like uh, I know they're probably financial things and logistics and maybe they just wanted to do their own movie. But that was when I thought, Oh, this could have just been no other actors, not to take anything away from Paul Dooley and all those guys, but, but How fun would it have been if it was that the SCTV sort of Monty Python thing? I I always feel bad that there was never a movie like that.
6: It was a little weird that there were no other SCTV people in the film. And I think that there was a lot of ill will towards Moranis and Thomas. Um, Was it really? Oh, I didn't know that. Well, from what I understand, I mean, and, you know, we, we can go back to the, the SCTV interview and everything, but yeah, from what I understand, Dave Thomas was the head writer, and when Bob and Doug started blowing up, people started thinking, "Oh, well, he's you know he's he's gaming the system and putting too much Bob and Doug on the show and all this stuff." Even though they only made I don't know twenty some appearances on the show over the four seasons that they were on, four full seasons, and then they had done some um, what Cinemax stuff and and all that, and yeah, apparently. Um, there was some ill will towards those guys when it came to how successful Bob and Doug were.
7: Oh, I can see that. Cause, yeah, you'd mentioned before, like, um, you know, those those movie guys like I thought, oh, this is that's a natural when they sort of pull back and they're watching the movie like it, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, if that's too bad. You want the Beatles to get along.
8: Skizet, do you have any favorite bits that you want to bring up? There's just so many lines. I mean, they're, they're like I don't know whether the, their speech is based on real Canadian slang or if they actually came up with these phrases. But you know, there's just a line that'll pop up here and there that I'll think that they came up with, but I don't know. You know, like oh, somebody horked our clothes. I mean. <laughs> You know, is horked an actual Canadian slang word for stealing or giving the whole good day and calling each other a hoser and take off and all that? I, I don't know whether that's genuine or if these guys put up with it.
6: My favorite bit of the film Doesn't even have anything to do with Bob and Doug It's the trial And when Paul Dooley Is up on the stand And is talking about uh, The videotape evidence that they have Of Bob and Doug Knocking out Pam and um, uh, Mr. Green (laughs) And he does that line about
8: And I'd like to point out that this, uh, This tape has not been Tampered with or edited in any way uh, it even has a, a time code on it, and, and those are very difficult to fake.
6: And this is 1983 that this comes out. In 1982 was the John DeLorean trial, which was all about right. the time code on the tape and everything. And it's like, so it, it's just it, that to me, even though I'm, I'm freaking 11 years old, i managed to get that joke. That's funny when not the one.
7: reference, I think. It's just so
8: funny yeah. that you offer that up. Just because I don't know what it is doesn't mean I'm lying. Like I
6: said, it's funny because to me Dooley is one of the funniest characters in here, and he just his his timing is great. Was great I would have
7: the every every performance was was good in the movie. I thought
6: I would have paid to have seen just a movie of of Dooley and Van Cidao. You know, just the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I love Von Siddhau kind of cloistered in his little thing and controlling everybody from in there and I, I've been working on a compilation, um, just a written one so far, of the many deaths of Max von yeah, that's a great great uh, the the death in here is pretty good yeah. with uh with the light bulb somehow turning into the laser map and, lights. <laughs> yes. That old song <laughs> burning through his body. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so uh let's take a break and play another interview. We're gonna play an interview with Strange Brew screenwriter Steve DeJarnett.
1: You listen to this, okay, you'll find out who our sponsor is. You don't even know anything about the radio business, do you? Take off. I arranged everything. I I arranged at all with our sponsors and you're, you you were in the john while i did that oh take off you're yeah, lying he's lying of, everybody for about an hour we, i ask you we'll the public, be right back
5: what does someone do in the john for an hour huh? take off
8: hi i'm mark and you know what? I'm Mike. And we're the host of the Hollywood Upside Down podcast. We are the only podcast that looks at the films of Fred Olin Ray and Jim Wynorski
7: exclusively on a year-by-year basis.
8: Every episode, we present the news surrounding the world of these two legendary filmmakers. And
7: we also try to speak with the many people
8: involved with the films we discuss. Speaking of films, we generally talk about three to four films per episode by reviewing and rating them.
5: If you want to find out what those films are, visit our website at HollywoodUpsideDown.wordpress.
8: You can download our show via iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, by searching for Hollywood Upside Down.
7: So if you're a fan of B-movies and you know you are, you wouldn't be listening to us. Chances are you've seen some of the films of Fred Owen Ray and Jim Wynorski.
8: So why don't you join us from episode to episode and relive some of those favorite movie moments.
7: The moments you'll hear on the Hollywood Upside Down podcast. Honestly, the real reason we watch these films is we love watching booze. We sure do. Lots of large, small, flappy, flapjacky. No, Mike, no, 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 very well-endowed, boisterous, giant, jiggly
2: boobs. Those, too. Yes. One dark and stormy night in the mid-'80s, Joe Bob Briggs, Harlan Ellison, and the ghost of El Santo pulled a train on Elvira while Siskel and Ebert sobbingly masturbated in the corner. From that union arose the greatest movie critic and luchador that ever lived. We're not going to talk about him. He's kind of a dick. Instead, we're going to talk about me, El Goro, the stuttering movie fan and host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Every week on Talk Without Rhythm, I discuss two to three movies tangentially tied together by a theme. I cover action. And the most complete fighter in the world. Sci-fi Open the pod bay doors, Hell. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Horror Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And the continuing adventures of James Spader, sexual deviant.
4: You're not worried that I'm gonna fuck you, are you? I'm not interested in that, and I'm waste. Now pull up your skirt.
2: So check me out at tworpodcast.blogspot.com, drunkenzombie.com, or subscribe on iTunes. Talk Without Rhythm, the only podcast that will not attract the world. Adios.
6: Zombie! <laughs> He's creating, <laughs> that dude.
8: Perfor. I don't ever oh. want to hear you say you're perforating that thing <laughs> ever again. Perforating it
6: <laughs> on your own time. Zombie!
10: Okay, what are you selling? She's like, I'm selling magazine subscriptions. I'm like, no, I'm good. I don't want to buy any magazines. She's like, okay. So she reaches down to her cleavage and pulls out a joint, and she's like, want to celebrate 420? And I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs>
6: Zombie! Head, you just don't want to see through his eyes what he's doing. <laughs> no, it's just not good. <laughs> gonna see say. it in 3D. That'll buy you one heck of a
5: bumpkin.
6: We just we, as soon as we announced the title, Dave was just like, Oh, bumpkin head. I'm like, Yeah, I'm sure we'll be making fun of it. All. Zombie! That New Jersey hooker gave me a bumpkin and a scorching case of gentle warts for only three dollars <laughs> and <laughs> sixty two cents. Wow, That's a pretty good deal. Zombie,
5: drunken zombie. Lowering in standards across the nation, every fucking show.
6: And remember, if you're looking for high-class podcast quality, head over to jorkinzombie.com.
1: Massive. Good day, I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother, Doug. How's eh? it going, eh? And welcome to our beer commercial. Guess why we're doing it, eh? We have uh, beautiful women in high-brow sports. You wrote that on your hand? uh, You moron? I did not. Come on, you gotta really drill it, eh? (laughs) Bolson Gold the best there is from Canada sure
9: you don't want to stick around have a beer jerks
1: okay what do you like better take in take out eat in or take out or eat in what do you like better I prefer to go eat in and then take out I like to call up tell them I'm going to take it out and then get there and eat it in, because then it's a surprise.
10: How on earth did you get involved with those guys? Well, here's exactly the story of my involvement, and the person who is totally responsible for Strange Brew doesn't even get a credit on the movie, and that's Joel Silver. Uh, He was working for Larry Gordon at the time. You know, he was a... Hot shot, you know, an underling for Larry Gordon, who was a big producer and had run studios. And the McKenzie brothers thing, you know, you know, the history of that, right? They had to do two minutes of Canadian programming. So they did that. And it was like, you know, there's got to be a Bob and Doug movie. There's got to be a Bob and Doug movie. And there was some deadline, like, you know, well, if you can get M, you know, maybe there wasn't a deadline yet. I can't remember. But mainly the deal was John Belushi had just died. They were going back on the show, and they were just too – I mean, everybody in the comedy world was just devastated, and they were – just going back on the show was about all they could handle – and so uh they you know they said, eh, maybe next year a Joel Silver said, No, no, we'll get a writer, you know, you'll you'll knock ideas around, you know. You know, Rick Moranis used to do Joel Silver on the show, where he'd, his knees would go back and forth and go, I hey, get my mom on the phone and pick up the phone, Mom, Mom, I can't talk to you and hang up. So, you know, Albert Brooks played him in a the Jim Brooks movie. I think Roger Rabbit, there's, there's Joel, is Joel Silver in it? Maybe, you know, I don't know, whatever it is. Like, you know, he's almost a character. He's a great guy. He he put the whole thing together. He's, I imagine, sent them many writers worth of scripts and he sent up um, Miracle Mile and some logging comedy I wrote for, to be like a Burt Reynolds movie or whatever. Anyway, next thing I know, I'm on a, on a plane to Toronto with the job to you know try to find a, a Bob and Doug movie somehow. Ultimately, to cut to the chase, you know Joel Silver they they wanted they said he had actually have to come up there and produce it, be on the set producing it, or you wouldn't get a credit. And he would have had to leave forty eight hours, which you know made his career. He, you know, there would it would not exist other than Joel Silver, you know, m- made it exist.
6: Well, Yeah, what was that collaboration like? I mean, you had you met these guys before? No, they they like you know, I
10: guess they liked the script. I mean, Miracle Mile was a um, you know certainly had nothing to do, wasn't comedic, and the other one had more comedy in it. But they, you know, they they liked it, and, and I went up there, and they were they were very nice. They, it was. It was very weird because, yeah, there are people depressed and, you know, even then um, it was interesting to see, you know, they had gotten this huge success off this little throwaway bit. And so I guess, you know, there was a little bit of like the fact, you know, whatever it was, they weren't getting along with everybody else on the thing. I think John Candy was their buddy and he, he was already sort of leaving to do movies and, you know, whatever it was there, were, you know, they had to go back on the show and they put me up in a hotel suite in Toronto at the park park plaza i don't know what it were, park hotel, and you know would would sit around and knock ideas around and I'd go back to l a with you know it was weeks, weeks you know the when I left the hotel bill was was like eighteen thousand dollars and this is nineteen eighty one and i and I felt horrible it's like you know you should have bought a house, but whatever it was, they kept it there i'd go back to l a for ten days and they'd keep my suite there. So it was really bizarre. There's a thing online with Dave Thomas telling a story that isn't true, and I'm sure Rick wouldn't like it either. They they had a big falling out later and it was just like, you know, I've never responded to it, but it's like, you know, that's not what happened. <laughs> yeah, and and I think Dave probably would regret that too. I think I I can't say it was mine either, but anyway, Hamlet in a brewery somehow was, you know, I I have some old notes of some other versions that they'd done, but anyway, agreed, let's do Hamlet and a brewery, you know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern or Hoser's A, and there'll be an evil brewmeister, and, the you know, the guys will stumble into this, this world. Literally there was a big time crunch then, like we need a script in in two weeks, in ten days. So after sort of hashing stuff out, I had actually had a blister on my foot, I remember, from running, but I went and ran anyway on the top of the hotel on this little tiny track and I went and ran twelve miles and I'm not a distance runner. I was used to be a sprinter. And I my foot got infected. I had a blister within a blister and I had to prop my foot up for a week and I wrote the first draft in 10 days with my foot propped up, and it's you know, story-wise, it's scene for scene, the, the movie, things changed around, I mean, they were all, it was always going to be three people credited, I mean me, and then them as a team and that that is what the credit reads uh, it, it perhaps should be more story by me, or story by all of us, and script by them, because, you know, they improvised at least half the dialogue, I mean they, they you know, the way you Curb Your enthusiasm, and all those too. So, I mean, there's, there's things that are exactly in the script, you know, letting mods out, or taking mice back to the, the brewery, or I know I have storyboards of, which I was looking for, of, you know, the the truck flying through the air and then going underwater and drinking the, the the things into there. So I mean, it's all the schematic was all there. And you know, um, anyway, ter, you know, wrote the script. They asked me to direct the movie, so I was the director for another month or two. Um, now, to some degree, they were always going to be directing it too. Probably, I uh, you know hired David L. Snyder, who was the product or was the art director of Blade Runner. And, you know, big production designer, great guy. And he ended up doing the movie. So I hired him. I hired the second unit DP of Blade Runner. So when I was going to do it, I think it was – at least I was looking at it as, you know, a little more – Cinematic thing. I remember I wanted to do the um, Shining trailer, the the where the elevator doors open and the blood pours out. We we're going to redo that, but with beer. That was going to be like a teaser trailer, like a year in advance, you know, for the Bob and Doug And then, the, the, you know, you'd have ominous music and the elevator doors would open and they'd wash out in a sea of beer right into the camp. And you know, all this stuff was sounded great. You know, Molsons had gotten free publicity from the show They you know, we we drink Molson's, you know, and Carling and Labatt's, and I don't know if there's another big Canadian beer company. They all wanted in on the Bob and Doug movie. We'll put a million dollars into the at marketing, whatever. You know, we we got to be involved. We'll out, we'll outbid Molsons, and so in pre-production, you know, would tour Carling, and they'd go, you know, you're gonna blow up the place. You can do whatever you want to. So it we, we was starting to be, you know, they, they had heat like the way that, like, you know, Blues Brothers or something. You know, they they just had to, no budget. They were gonna go, you know, destroy Chicago, and they did. You know, th- this got scaled way down. MGM, I think, you know, gave it a green light, you know, and, and that was what was happening. The line producer that came in was an interesting guy, Jack something, you'd have to look in the credits, and he had done Woody Allen's early movies. And him and I didn't get along too well, because you know, I wanted to do, you know, I brought in the Blade Runner guys, and I wanted to redo the Shining trailer, and yeah, I don't know what happened. I mean, ultimately, it went as a Canadian production, and I wasn't Canadian, and so they directed it and that's the official thing that it went as it is a you know canadian movie i mean i think they were going to be you know certainly i was going to be deferring to them creatively on anything character wise i think they just wanted me to like you know sort of be the the visual guy but this guy and i didn't get along and he he kept his mantra was woody's early movies looked like shit it's a comedy it doesn't matter what it looks like this has got to be cheap I think that was a factor in me not directing it. It, it turned out okay. They paid me $50,000 to not direct the movie, which is a good job to have. And I used every penny of it to buy Miracle Mile back from Warner Brothers and spent the next eight years trying to get that made. So if I hadn't been able to do that, I would have lost my my baby. And they directed it together. Uh, they kept um, David Snyder, and um, who you can, I, you know, you should talk to as well. He will, he will know the the dealings of the actual making of the movie. You know, uh, I was, you know, I left in pre production, and Stephen Poster, who was second unit on DP, shot it, and Paul Chadwick, who started doing storyboards for me, and had storyboarded Miracle Mile and some other things, you know, storyboarded the whole thing as well. He went on to do. He has his, you know, a concrete um, Dark Horse comic book that has a big cult following that Peter Jackson was going to do. So, you know, he also would know the what happened during production. I do know from those guys that, and this was a bit that, that was on the sh- on the show, But you know, you put a mouse in the bottle and you take it back to the store and you get a free case so i you know i took that from their bits and put it in the script um the moths i think was my twist on that like you know how to get a get a, your free movie with the moths and anyway the, the carling and the bats and molson's even molson's read the script and they all united against the film and said you got to take the mouse in the bottle bit out you can't do that and Rick and Dave, you know, at this time point in time, think they're the hottest guys in the world. And they go, fuck you. And they and all those breweries boycotted the movie. And I guess they had to go out to Vancouver and buy into a closed-down brewery or something. They invested in the brewery, whatever it was. It was, you know, it would have been, you know, Carling and Lavette, these were huge places. So it was a, that got scaled down too. But it was also like, you know, I wouldn't have... I, <laughs> I wouldn't have done that I because it is sort of a, it's a cute bit. But, I mean, they could have had millions of dollars to promote the movie and all this other stuff. But you know, we're keeping that bit in there. So that happened after me. Were you um, around at all when the casting was going on? uh yeah i remember we cast in la and think i think most of the they ended up doing most of the casting in using canadians but we we had sessions at mgm meg lieberman was the casting woman and i re i do remember the the what was her name she's a facebook friend of mine she was the casting assistant it was just a sweetheart and she ended up marrying harold ramus you know when they were together he recently passed away you know who was you know a total comedy gene. Erica Mann was her name, and then I guess Erica Ramos. Lots of people came in. Um Annie Potts, I remember. I thought I think that's who I thought was, you know, who <laughs> was in Ghostbusters ironically. W- was I think who I liked for the princess or whatever. Maybe she was too old, but and you know, Joel Silver was still involved, you know. So I think it wasn't until they started shooting, you know, they, they decided Steve's gonna try to spend too much money making it look like something Joel's got to leave 48 hours and come up here and be on the set. And he wisely did not do that. But, man, they, for them not to give him a credit is absurd. They would The movie would not exist without him. There would never have been a Bob and... Maybe in the next year. I don't know. What I heard is, is that, you know, shooting it, I think they got along okay. You know, they, I mean, they, they were best friends and, you know, collaborators. But then Rick went off to do... Streets of Fire that Joel produced and some other stuff. And I think Dave sort of was left to do, you know, the heavy lifting in post production. I don't know what happened between them, but I I was told that, you know, there was some resentment or something. Um, I and mean, they patched it up because years later they were going to do a sequel. But, and yeah, I know online somewhere uh, Dave goes off about how, oh, we got this script, but it was no good. So we just did this other thing. No, I mean, I, you know, they didn't ask me to direct the movie because I wrote a script and they threw it out. I mean, we were doing Hamlet in a Brewery and I storyboarded. And I hired, you know, the, the people and yes, the dialogue is, is their improvs, you know, essentially. But, you know, I, I looked through it once and it was like, you know, 75, 80% of scene, scene for scene, exactly what's in the script. So, and it was always just going to be the, you know, the, the jumping off point of them doing stuff.
6: Yeah. I read one draft of the script. I think it was like from May of 82, and definitely it has all the pieces and everything, but yeah, the dialogue is different and the, um, the princess character, very different in that one. It felt like,
10: yeah, you know, I, I was trying to find them around here. I, I mean, I have a couple drafts and, and that's, you know, par for the course. I mean, any movie that makes it to a theater in Hollywood usually has about 15 to 20 writers on it. <laughs> and, you know, luckily I, I had a con, you know, by doing the, the first draft, you know, and having two thirds, at least of the story be, You know, in that draft, uh, you know, you can't arbitrate against it, or or, you know, whatever. You know, I mean, knowing them of at that time of them, you know, not giving Joel Silver a credit, I don't know that they would have tried to to do that to me, but you know, they, you know, I had a contract. Whatever it was, I remember seeing the movie, and I was very, uh, you know, whatever it is, I. I was not I was underwhelmed when I first saw it and then I learned to appreciate it later the, the sublime silliness of it but it didn't do you know it didn't do any box office in the states it it came and went
6: Now would that have been your first directing credit?
10: Yeah I mean I I made a short black and white detective movie called Tarzana 35 black and white dropped out of the AFI in the late 70s when I was 12 and um or 9 I can't remember don't don't <laughs> <laughs> Wikipedia has my age wrong. I don't, and I'm not going to try to correct it. But, um, and I turned down uh, a whole bunch of features. It was, it, you know, had Eddie Constantine in it and Timothy Carey from Paz the Glory and the Killing. And, you know, I got to be, back then you could milk it a lot longer. I got to be, you know, a hot young director who didn't, who just turned down stuff. And and so I was get, got ready to make Strange Brew, almost did that. I was going to do a Hells Angels movie where I discovered Mickey Rourke and, you know, a lot, a lot of these projects that you get ready to do. And then I finally ended up doing Cherry, which, you know, was a, you know, I don't know, now, now it has a cult following, but at the time it didn't do my career any good. I don't know if I've seen Tarzana or not, but I
6: know that I've seen... A scene with Timothy Carey and Michael Gwynn together. Yeah,
10: that's uh, Romeo Carey has a, that's the outtake, and Romeo's going to try to. I mean, Phil, uh, the outtake, he plays at Timothy Carey retrospectives, and it's it's a bizarre, You know, it exists because I didn't. I <laughs> say cut, and I should have. Tim used up all the film. We shot. We thought we were shooting for you know seven days or something. We shot for two, t- three days and ran out of film because Tim used up all the film. But it's an amazing amazing improv, weird, bizarre outtake. But the film is, you know, looks like it's a Raymond Chandler thing. It's 33 minutes. It looks, we had, you know, three different DPs and four different shoots, but it's, you know, it's a good little noir piece. It used to play a lot in noir festivals and I'm, I got to get it back out there. You know, it's a little problematic. I, I think I did clear the music, but it's stock music from old TV shows and stuff like that. So um, it's hard to to sell. I'd give it away. You know, used to play a lot. And then there's a guy uh, who has a theater in Toronto, Rue Perea or something. He's a he wants to play um, Miracle. I mean, no, he wants to play a bunch of stuff. I need to get out there. I, I, I actually uh, Romeo Carey found a bunch of other footage that the lab was throwing out. I mean, this is a long. long Time has passed. And so I don't want to just put it on, on YouTube because, you know, people just dupe that and do bad quality. So, you know, same thing with the outtake Or um, you know, don't really want to put that on um, there either. You know, so somehow between us, we're going to do something with it. And then the relatives of, of an old girlfriend who put up the money, you know, I, I mean, it's just sort of, you know, it's just sort of a mess. So. I don't know if it'll ever come out, but it could certainly play a film festival or a screening here or there. And used to do that regularly, you know, in the early, in the 80s. But, yeah, Michael C. Gwynn is interesting really good he really makes it work um eddie constein from alphaville you know was in it briefly and tim tim's got a big part but and you know i ran in i i think i ran into dave and and rick later on a few years later and and you know at least at least rick as i remember was like you know it was all like oh you know did you we should have had you then then we could be mad at you and not each other or whatever. Whatever it was, it probably would have. I think I, I, think I even told him It's like, geez, you guys need me, because being a first-time director, too, nobody who's a first-time director should have done that. It should have been an experienced... Hack who could deliver it and let them do their creative thing within the budget so I mean I know I wouldn't have been good either actually
6: well it seems like you kind of surrounded yourself or would have surrounded yourself with some really talented people when it came to that well
10: that's why it does look David did Snyder's great I mean when he did you know look up his credits David l Snyder he really is responsible for building most of the stuff on Blade Runner I mean Ridley's a designer, so it's Ridley's head. And uh, the credited production designer was gone, <laughs> so I have Sherman Labbies, who was a good friend of mine, was married to him. The storyboarder. I have four hundred pages of um, you know Blade Runner storyboards that I don't even think uh, Ridley has. So you know, I, and I do uh, admire those guys for hiring Max von Sydow. I remember he was mentioned. Uh, you know, I mean, when we were casting, yeah, you know, we didn't. You know, we were considering. You know, anybody. You know, nobody was too big to. I, I am not responsible for that. I think it was—it was probably Joel Silver. You know, it sounds to me like—I mean, they—you know—they're up in Canada. They don't know—you know—they're they're hot, but they're—you know—they—they don't know the ropes. I think it was Joel Silver, probably, who got ahead of, of Freddie Fields, who was—you know—giant agent and had run studios and convinced him all the kids like this movie. You got to do this, and I guess when he showed up. <laughs> <laughs> you know first time directors and you're doing brewmeister Smith with buck teeth I mean. I don't know. You'd have to ask. I could put you in touch with Paul Chadwick and hopefully David Snyder, and they can tell you what happened on the set. But to me, when I'm watching it, my jaw just drops. You know, one of the great actors of all time doing toilet jokes, you know, <laughs> essentially. So, yeah, Max, I don't have credit for. And they, you know, there's some good character actors. I mean, they. I forget the guy's name. You know, he's a really good. I mean he can do serious acting too, you know, who um Paul Dooley? Paul Dooley, yeah. Wonderful actor from a lot of lot you know, Altman movies and was that Bike movie, the rate you know
6: Breaking
3: Away
10: Breaking yeah. Away. and the hockey players. Uh, one thing I did try to write into a, one version of the script, and it still should have been in there, it would have been a funny bit was to have the Hansen brothers from Slapshot do a little cross pollinization and then be in the mental institution. So so they'd be out there playing and I'd be oh no the Hansons. That would have been awesome. Yeah, wouldn't that have been great? You know, so and the other thing <laughs> I remember I wrote it into the movie, cause, and they were supposed to give me a free one, was, was a McClavier, the keyboard thing they're playing, which was the Canadian version of a Synclavier that, you know, had done the music for uh, Tubular Bells and, you know, a lot of really sophisticated, you know, they cost $300,000, and I actually had one recently to try to refurbish, and I collect a lot of vintage recording gear. Um but it's so I wrote you know it was a fledgling Toronto company they had like two or three of them and it's in the movie you know the Mcclavier but it, <laughs> even that is funny the McClavier. Uh, but the company went under and they it didn't really sound like that you had to do it on another instrument or whatever so uh, I think I think Dave's brother scored the movie and I, it's got a good score I think it's weird I think my my girlfriend's you know t- you know 12 year old and 8 year old the 8 year old like to the 12 year old was kind of it's 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 a slower thing you know you have to you know it's not it's not a fast cut movie like everything today where you know your attention span is never allowed to to wane I don't think, yeah, I don't think he, he was into it that much. But um, yeah, I haven't seen it for. It's a great poster. I'm getting a framed, a giant, big sized poster of it framed, which I, lo- I love. the poster with so much is going on in it. But
6: and there were so many cool tie-ins for it too. I remember the multiple albums and the the book and everything that came out around. And, it.
10: Uh, I mean, the album was had come out before the movie, so I mean, I definitely listened to that and and then watched all the bits that had done and and you. Oh, I know. Yeah, they like the MG. GM lion they added that that was that was not in the script and that was i thought was really hilarious the film within a film was in there but you know they all the stuff that the you know the omega man you know i mean you know that's that's them doing their thing but yeah it was going to be an evil brewmaster ghost in the system hamlet and then yeah poisoning oktoberfest and yeah, I mean, it's too. Like I say, I think it's really important that Joel Silver get credit for its existence. I mean, I know I don't know that when the movie came out, he wanted his name on it because it bombed at the box office and the and those kind of producers like you know. They don't want their name on something that bombed and like you said, he if he would have left forty eight hours, you know, we would we wouldn't have him as as a caricature of himself. But you know, I'd bump into him on the street and he, you wrote me a script that got that got a green light at a studio. Uh and it, there was a big time crunch. I can't remember what it was, but it was literally like we gotta have this script. And so it was it was it was ground out in a in a hurry. If I find the storyboards or something, well you, you like you don't have you don't have visuals, but the I mean the Paul Chadwick storyboards are really cool. I don't know. Yeah, then I know they were gonna do a sequel. I mean now I they're too, you know, they're they're old. And Rick, um, you know, Rick really sort of retired. I guess he did he put out an album or something or something. Well,
6: yeah, I tried to, I spoke to his agent. He said that he's not doing any interviews or anything. But yeah, he did a couple of few years ago around this album that he put out, but
3: yeah,
10: that's it yeah, yeah. it's kind of sad because I mean he really is a genius, I think I mean Dave's funny Dave to me is, reminds me more of like you know when he does Bob Hope maybe that's what it is from like you know more of an old you know style comedian, and Rick is real cerebral and smart guy. I know I think he you know the illness of his I think his wife or something you know I, I think he 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 didn't like raising his kids in l a or something you know and he you know he just sort of he dropped out and, and did, did, did stuff but I mean I wish he would do so, some more acting because he there's a whole you know it's either him or Bob Balaban you know to do certain characters right <laughs> you know um, and uh, I don't know Dave I know it was on a sitcom or something but I don't know Well, like I said I mean I wish him well too I, I, yeah, I found some interview once on there and it was like geez Dave you know um, <laughs> be a little magnanimous Because it was not, you know, I can show you all the scripts and I looked through that one. And it was like basically he was discounting, like, oh, there was some guy and he gave us something and then we just did our thing. And it was like, no, that's not, that's not true. As I pointed out, I hired these guys and it's, you know, you didn't ask me to direct it and, and pay me to direct it. If you were if you just threw the script out. But, you know, but they deserve, of course, you know, not I mean, not two thirds of the credit. They deserve eighty five percent of the credit for what's on screen. And I, I it wouldn't exist if not for me to to have ground out that draft. And it absolutely would never exist without Joel Silver. Who li- literally just made it happen by screaming, "There's got to be a Bob and Doug movie. There's got to be a Bob and Doug movie," and they were not going to do it. They didn't have the inertia. I went up there, and and he he made it happen. So.
6: Well, good. Yeah, that's my first time hearing that he was involved at all. So it's good to
10: know. Yeah, I mean that that was the other thing I remember. I think when I read that too, I I actually didn't feel I felt a little bit bad for me. I wasn't mentioned by name. It was like, oh, some guy wrote a thing, and we threw that out, and then we did our thing. No, and and you didn't originate it, and you were never going to do anything other than you know one of the biggest producers in Hollywood made you do it and spread the uh, thing around. They had some, and there's another guy I forget his name. Elliot, who was their manager up there, and so he was—he was a producer. And then the Jack guy, I think, was probably good for them. It's probably exactly what they needed—is you know, a line producer that you know didn't you know kept them on budget because first-time directors, you know, it could have been worse. You know, they you know, um, if I would have done it, (laughs) I think, Uh, or if we if you tried to you know make it be a big visual spectacle, I mean, it looks cool. Looks cool. I think the mat, old-fashioned matte painting things are good and all that so.
3: excuse me
1: yeah i know you're busy listening to music Can I I take, like, a brief interlude? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, do you mind? I have a couple questions to ask you, Mr. Genius. Me? Yeah, you. Uh, Okay, let me just uh, get ready here, okay? Okay, I've seen this movie, okay? I was in the movie. Yeah. I directed the movie with you. Yeah. I wrote the movie with you. You what? (laughs) You knob, you can't even talk. What kind of an interview is this? Go on. (laughs) Fire away. Okay. Claude, the guy you stole from Hamlet... The guy who is similar to the guy in Hamlet. And whether or not I stole it or Shakespeare stole it, let our lawyers... Oh, wait a second. Shakespeare stole it from who? You? He may have. You don't know. Wait, when was this written? Listen, our script got all over the place. Anybody could have read it. Jeez, that's true, you know. He could have horked our idea. That's what I heard, you know. I heard that, like, when you write a script and it gets down to Hollywood, it goes to all the other agencies. I don't know who Shakespeare's with, but his agent could have read it could have read it, and given it to him. Then that knob wrote it in England. And just because he wrote it in England, he'd get credit. Anyway, okay, this guy, Claude, he owns Brewery, right? That's right. Because he murdered his father, his brother? His brother. His brother. Didn't you see it? I saw it. it. His brother turned out to be a ghost? Yeah. Okay. Now, okay, that clears up a lot of things for me. Beauty, I thought you had a question there, but you were just basically telling yourself the story again, eh? Oh,
11: good.
6: Excuse me. All right, we're back. Thanks to Steve DeJarnette for coming on the show. If all goes right, we'll hear from him again next year when we cover his film Miracle Mile. So I did have a chance to look at, I don't know if it's the original script. I mean, it had a May 82 date on it, which is like... A uh, year, just about a year before the film came out. So I'm thinking it's a pretty early draft. And, you know, he talks about how tough it is to write for Bob and Doug. And I think that Thomas has even said himself that, you, you know, they're the only guys who could write Bob and Doug and that anybody else who tries really couldn't do it. And personally, I kind of wonder how much is written versus just kind of ad libbed. Yeah, but I so I managed to, um, Take a look at the the script. It's probably another 30 pages, another half an hour longer than the the movie that we saw. There's this, whole, like, the part where they're in the insane asylum, end of the second act kind of thing. That goes on for so long. It's not even funny. Well, you want to bet there's
7: a 10-minute version of that, too.
6: Yeah, it, I mean, it is just like so much stuff going on and they have all these optical illusions and they're trying to break Bob and Doug and trying to find out where the computer disc is, the whole MacGuffin thing, and there's this whole thing about Bob and Doug when they kidnapped Pam and the other guy, that they were actually part of this uh Scottish separatist movement, um, which I didn't know that there was such a thing in in Canada. <laughs> And to me, that kind of speaks more to Macbeth than to Hamlet, yeah. personally. Well, that was but, the sequel yeah, to Macbeth. Right. And there's this whole thing, too, where Max von Sydow, he's not just Brewmeister Smith, but he th- is Martin Bormann, the famous Nazi. But then it turns oh. out towards the end that his name is actually Lenny Schultz and that he oh, thinks geez. he's Martin Bormann. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And there's this whole like his fifteen point plan of how he's going to take over the world and all this stuff and yeah it it's, I mean it gets
7: really I involved. also thought At one with point, the Star Wars stuff that he was going to say that as he was dying because it was sort of like they were fighting with that pipe it was kind of like the yeah. you know lightsaber fight I thought he was going there was going to be revealed that he was either their father or um, or uh, Rosie's father
6: there you go that would have added some drama to it
7: well or a reference anyway. Another, yeah, a pop reference.
6: It's kind of funny that they say that Doug's seen Jedi like 15 times or whatever because I don't think the Jedi had even come
7: out. When That's what I was trying to do the math out. on that, too. It must have just come out.
8: Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think because I saw Jedi at the same theater and it was either that summer or the summer before. Yeah, I don't remember now.
7: Also, at the script, the shooting script or the script that you have is 82 and it came out in 83. I would say that was a later version of the script because. You know they're they're usually shot a year in advance and and uh, and then it's it's edited. So if it was eighty two, I mean it'd be early if it was like eighty or eighty one, perhaps. But but eighty two sounds like it was probably you know they'd had to be getting close. Or it was a complete rewrite or something. Does it? Have you read it? Is there? Is it? Does it bear any resemblance to the movie? It bears a lot of resemblance,
6: actually. I mean, the major plot points are all there. The whole idea of the mouse and the bottle, even starting off in the movie within a movie and everything. The mouse and the bottle. The guy in the audience yelling, "You know they did this on their album." So we're going along beat per beat for a while there, going to the brewery, getting the jobs, helping out a Pam, all this kind of stuff. It's really just kind of the details, and it's definitely the dialogue. The dialogue between Bob and Doug is completely different, and the way that Pam is portrayed, she's a lot different as well. She's very self-centered in this one, and she's at the beginning she's just constantly talking about her weight and how she doesn't uh, drink beer because it's going to you know, ruin her figure and all this kind of stuff, and when she meets uh, Rosie, who in this one is called Boom Boom, when she meets Rosie... She doesn't recognize him as being a hockey player, says that she never watched hockey. But it's the same thing, too, where Rosie just falls in love with her like that. You know, there is no hesitation at all. It's just like, we need to have these two characters together. There needs to be a love story. So they just kind of shoehorn this thing in. But yeah, as far as the major plot points, at the end of course is very different. There's Hosehead does not fly off to Oktoberfest and kind of save the day. Right. That is 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 just not there. Hosehead is really not in the, the film that much. In the script, I should say, that much. So there are some differences. And I was just looking, uh, apparently... Jedi would have been out for about three months before this, because this came out August 26, 1983, and I think Jedi came out in June. Might have been May. There's no intermission break in the script, but there is kind of what you were talking about, Craig, that playing with reality. There's a little bit more of that, just at one point when they're in the... Insane Asylum, they make a wrong turn, and they end up in the lobby of the theater. Right. And they get some popcorn, (laughs) and then they go back into the theater, go back into the movie, and then when they get back to that place, it's a, a solid wall. There's no escape. But then these two... And I shit you not, these two caber tossers (laughs) are there, (laughs) part of the Scottish separatist Movement. And they toss these cabers at the insane asylum, and they catch fire, and they have one of them, this burning caber, laying in the, the, uh, the theater lobby and uh, crush the popcorn machine, and it's on fire. There's no peeing on the fire. That whole part right. doesn't happen. So it's it's kind of an odd thing. In fact, all three, Pam, Bob, and Doug, get stuck in that uh, tank where all the beer is coming in.
7: Another Star Wars thing, yeah.
6: And for some reason... Pam is getting really drunk and really horny at this point and basically invites the boys to have sex with her. And the movie ends with Rosie and Pam and these seven babies, and they all have toques on. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit different of an
7: ending. Yeah, it's tad tad different.
6: The only other note that I had for myself was that—well, actually, I have two. One of them is that the whole plot that Martin Borman has is that the beer will make anyone sterile who doesn't have the right DNA to have Aryan babies. So kind of much more of a
7: three-the-hard-way type plot. Yeah, that's that's tough. If that doesn't work, that's tough to come back from.
6: (laughs) Yeah, that's not a big laugh line for me, you know? And the other one is that in the Psycho Ward, there's this whole subplot with these nymphomaniacs in the women's ward that we never see, of course, in the other one. And that these nymphomaniacs attack this guy whose name is Dr. Fuller. And, of course, he would be played by Sam Fuller in the film. And uh, there was a note that it was – you know, it even says, straight out of Shock Corridor. So, yeah, a little different there. So we are going to play an interview with Dave Thomas, and I'm very curious – Um, How this is going to go We're actually going to record this interview After we record the show So I'm curious how this is going to be Because as you heard DeJarnet He was kind of mad at um, Thomas For an interview that he did on the Kevin Pollack podcast Or show or whatever you want to call that We can uh, go ahead and play an interview With the co-writer and co-director Of Strange Brew Mr. Dave Thomas we normally don't do theme months, but something about Shakespeare in September, we figure what the hay. From Titus, tomorrow's
11: speech. Dissemble all your griefs and discontents. You are but newly planted on your throne. Lest then the people and the patricians, too, upon just survey, take Titus' part. And so supplant you for ingratitude, which Rome reputes to be a heinous sin. Yield it, retreats, retreat, and then let me alone. I can go on, but I won't. I just... Love the cadence of it, you know? The sheer language and cadence of it. But there are phrases in Shakespeare that Hamlet. Uh, lay uh, over Horatio, if ever thou didst hold me in thy heart. Absent thee from felicity awhile, and in this harsh world draw thy breath in pain to tell my story. That's really beautiful. The language is—I uh, mean, uh, I'm writing now. I, I'm writing all the time. I don't perform anymore. It's just boring, and I love the writing. I can't do that. I can't come anywhere near that. And I wish I could. I really do. Anyway. Let's talk about what you want to talk about and not what I am raving about.
6: So were you into the theater when you were in, it sounds like, when you were in college? Was that your major or was that something that you were doing on the side?
11: I went to school with Marty Short and Eugene Levy and Ivan We There was no theater courses at that school. It was engineering, philosophy, physics, no theater, no film. But the student union was very active, and they charged each undergraduate student, let's say, twenty-five or forty bucks to be part of the student union. And there were like eight thousand undergrads, so that ended up being a lot of money. And they doled that out through the student council to people that came to them and said, "We want to do plays," or "We like to start a radio station," or "We like." So there was an active radio station there in the student union building. There was a film board. There were Ivan and Dan Goldberg and Eugene Lovey and all those guys hung out. And Marty Short and I went to the student council and said we wanted to start a theater group because there was nothing there. When 19 year old kids are giving out money, they become real prudes about how they're doling it out. And they said, Yeah, so what kind of plays are you going to do? We said, Well, we want to do popular plays, you know, The Odd Couple, things like that. And they said, We can't approve that. If you want to form McMaster, that was the name of the school, McMaster Shakespearean Players, we could, we could fund that. So it was like, I said, Okay, fine. Let's do McMaster Shakespearean Players. Give us the money to mount some plays. So they did. The first play we did was The Odd Couple. <laughs> and and then we had to do a couple. We did The Tempest. And I think we, uh, we did a couple of others. Um, I can't remember. Oh, we did Macbeth, which was a disaster. Probably, uh, yeah, I think The Tempest had... Eugene was Caliban, Marty was Trinculo, the fool, and I was Stefano, the drunk butler. So we did do some Shakespearean plays, but it wasn't really what we wanted to do, you know. We wanted to be in showbiz, real showbiz.
6: The cast of the Godspell performance that you were in is legendary as far as how many amazing people were in that and how many of them came out of that, went into SCTV. Cast. Was that part of the same thing, or was that a later uh No, that later was like
11: But it was only t- two years after I graduated. I mean... Uh, no, it started in Toronto, and they had opened a play a Godspell in New York, and then they started, you know, branding it, taking it to other cities. And Toronto was the first city they came to, other than New York. And the first Godspell there had Victor Garber as Jesus, Gilda Radner, Andrea Martin, Marty Short, Eugene Levy, and some other actors who didn't come on to be uh, didn't go on to be quite as famous. Um. And then there was a shuffle. Victor Garber left the show. And so Eugene moved up to the role of Jesus. And there was an opening. And I got Eugene's part. I auditioned. Paul Schaefer was the musical director. And I auditioned for Paul. And I got a part in that. And that was a lot of fun. It was just great. And then after that show ended, there was a bit of a gap, like six months or something. And then Second City came to Toronto. And... Mounted a show At the very first Second City show in Toronto had Gilda Radner, Joe Flaherty, Dan Aykroyd, Valerie Brownfield, but they didn't have a liquor license and they were in a room that wasn't air conditioned. It was really hot. And Toronto summers are like Saigon. They're like humid and hot and horrible. So um, it closed, and everybody was real depressed. And I took a job in advertising because I I didn't want to be an actor who's really a waiter who claimed to be an actor. So I wrote up a bunch of fake ads, and I got a job in advertising. I was a copywriter at McCann Aronson. And, um, And I did that for a couple of years, and Second City came back to Toronto, got a liquor license, and started up again. And about six months into their uh, show, they decided to open a show in Pasadena. And then there was an opening, and I auditioned and got in. So I was then in a cast with Dan Aykroyd, Gilda, um, Andrew Martin, Catherine O'Hara. You no, know, Eugene went to Pasadena, and John Candy went to Pasadena. But then they came back because the Pasadena show was a disaster. And I, I don't know how long they were gone. I can't remember. It's like. It was no more than three months, and it might have been two. And Second City wasn't real popular when it started in Toronto. I remember there were numerous occasions when I did the show, and this would have—I would have been in the third
3: cast
11: there. There were numerous nights where there were more people on stage than in the audience. Like there were like eight of us or six. Seven of us on stage and three people in the audience. And it's an actor's equity rule that if there are more people on stage than in the audience, you can ask them to come back another night and you don't have to do a show. But somewhere in there, it caught on. And it went from being that lamentable and abysmal failure into something that was really, like, just jam-packed every night. And people would specifically come for the improvisation sets. It, it became a, a lot of fun and something pretty remarkable, you know?
6: How does it go from Second City, the live performance, to SCTV? What's that, how does that transform?
11: Well, here's what happened there. As you know, Lorne Michaels started um, SNL in 1975. And he actually raided Second City and a couple of other improv companies. But he lifted heavily from Second City for his cast. And he offered parts to Gilda Radner and John Belushi, who was from Second City in Chicago. And Danny, who was Second City in Toronto. So they left. I was only in the stage show with Danny for about six months before he left. Well, it might have been longer than that, because I know we started writing ads together and some television scripts. So it could have been nine months, but it was less than a year. Uh, Danny went to New York to do SNL. So Bernie Solomon, who owned Second City, got pissed off that Lauren had stolen his cast his TV show, and Bernie said, let's do our Allen TV show. Problem is, there was already a very successful sketch show out there, and and so selling a second one became an onerous and extremely difficult task. He managed to mount it with a Canadian production arm. Global Television provided the studio and the cameras and the crew, and then Bernie and Andrew Alexander got investors to put together to finance the... um, the above-the-line stuff, the actors and cast, the um, producers and directors and whatnot. And we were not really, we were on about 50 U.S. stations um, in first-run syndication and on Global Television Canada. And we did that for two seasons. We did 26 shows twice, and um, and then Global dropped us. Then all of a sudden our studio Didn't want anything to do with us anymore. To make a long story short, there was a year where it was down, and John Candy didn't want to do it, and he went off and did his own show for another network in Canada called CTV. He did a show called um, Big, Big City Comedy, and Andrea and Eugene wanted to go to L.A. and get cast in sitcoms, so we only had them for two weeks. But Andrew found a guy in Edmonton named Charles Allard, who was a very eccentric doctor who owned a super station. We were very much like Turner. It was a, uh, an Alberta television station with studios and giant um, satellite dishes that could broadcast uh, stuff anywhere in the world. Andrew talked this guy into financing the show. So next thing we knew, we were in Edmonton. And what happened was... Brandon Tartikoff, who was running NBC at that time, was watching this show, SCTV, and he put it in its third season in all the NBC OnOs and had it follow Saturday Night Live. That's where the show caught on. The show really never caught on until then. And it was Brandon Tartikoff who did it. And then once that happened, the show got pretty good ratings, and Tartikoff decided he already owned Saturday Night with Saturday Night Live. He decided, well, let's see if I can get a piece of the Friday night um, audience after Carson. So he said we. Uh, he offered us a 90-minute show that would start at 1230 and go till 2. Well, that's pretty late, and you're only going to get a certain type of audience of really eccentrics and kooks at that time of night. But that ended up being the audience that was a perfect match for us, and the show caught on. And the next thing we know, we're everybody's darling in L.A., and we get nominated for Emmys, and we win Emmys, and everybody knows who we are, and we start getting other offers, and then everything with respect to the SCTV show kind of fell apart, as is always the case. When a show becomes really
6: successful, you know, the other stuff pulls people out. Some of the segments on SCTV were so... Canadian-centric, Was there? Uh, were you ever surprised that it translated over to an American audience, or did you ever have concerns of, like, this isn't going to play in Peoria kind of thing?
11: There are a couple of guys, writers, who are friends of mine, Josh Weinstein and Bill Oakley. They ran The Simpsons for about five years. They said they found those Canadian things charming. And that's the word they used. There there was enough of the show that was relatable to Americans and that the Canadian stuff just seemed kind of interesting, eccentric, and charming to the um, American audience, guys like Weinstein and Oakley. Conan O'Brien also said, we got honored one year at the Sundance Festival and Conan was the moderator but he said his brother he and his brother used to watch the show and there were jokes in it in jokes that he felt that he and his brother both felt were aimed specifically at them. Meaning the references were so particular and so obscure that only they would be getting it. But actually as it turned out there was a lot. There were a lot more people who were getting it.
6: How did Rick Moranis come to be on the show? Because he wasn't part of the S- the Second City crowd, was he? No.
11: That third season I was talking about where John Candy went and did Big City Comedy and Eugene and Andrea were doing sitcoms and only participated for two weeks. We had to kind of bulk shoot their stuff. We were short. And I met Rick at a party in Toronto and thought he was really funny. And I went to Andrew Alexander and I said, you've got to hire this guy. This is the perfect guy to fill out the show when um, when we go to Edmonton. So Rick was hired and came to Edmonton with us, but that and I'd been head writer of the show after Harold Ramis left, so I, I had some sway and some clout. And I was able to, you know, that particular season, the third season, Andrew offered Flaherty and I producer positions, and I was head writer. And so it was like we could make recommendations to him, and they would have some merit, you know?
6: And my recommendation of Moranis got accepted, and so he got in the show. The McKenzie brothers were kind of a, well, they were satire, you know, the whole Canadian content laws thing. What was your intention with that idea? It, how did it kind of uh, start off and go where it went?
11: It wasn't really, there was no real long-term intention. It was, the show, the story is quite well known, but the the story of the genesis of the show. But um, what happened was, the when we were in our third season, the Canadian version, which ran on CBC, remember I said Global had dropped us after the second season. And Andrew managed to talk CBC into picking us up once this eccentric doctor in Edmonton, Charles Allard, was financing the show. So it was also in uh, on the NBC O&O's that Brandon Tartikoff was running. Now, there was a difference in program length between the NBC versions and the CBC versions, meaning that the NBC versions had two minutes more of commercial content than the Canadian versions. So knowing this, the CBC said, um, since we're funding you, we feel that the extra two minutes of programming time should be devoted specifically to Canadian content. And I said, Ryder, and I was pissed off by that. And I just said, well, you know, what do you want us to do? Like sit in front of a map of Canada and toot some parkas and drink beer and talk about how great Canada is? And they said, yeah, that'd be fine. <laughs> and if, if you had a Mountie in there too, that'd be good. So if you look at those very early SCTV shows, we have a Mountie mug. You know, it's like a, a like a Bavarian beer mug, but it's a Mountie with a with a top. His hat comes off when you push the the little lever, so you can sip the the beer. That's how Bob and Doug were born. And and you know, we Rick and I always thought the whole Canadian content thing was total bullshit, and so we mocked it mercilessly. And uh, but if you look at the Bob and Doug's, they started out with more of a Uh, A bent on um, mocking Canadian content and ended up becoming um, much more generic, where we would create fictitious scenarios like you know um, how to get free beer, you know put a mouse in a bottle, that kind of stuff. And um, and that was actually something I knew from my time in advertising because I'd been a a um, copywriter for McCann Erickson and I ended up becoming head writer on the Coca Cola account and. (laughs) <laughs> they would occasionally have mice and sometimes rats in beer, in, sorry, in bottles of Coke that people would sue the company over. You know, it's like a pretty disgusting thing when you pop your Coke and there's a mouse or a rat in there. <laughs> and they called them passengers. It was, it was like, it was like a, you know, an airline pilot saying, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have a we have an airplane that might be in conflict with us. What they mean by that's a euphemism for we have a plane hurling towards us at five hundred and fifty miles an hour that might crash into us. They use the term might be in conflict. And so they use the term in the bottling industry of a passenger to describe a mouse or a rat. It's not the way we would normally think of a passenger, you know what I mean? We normally think that that's somebody on a train or somebody on an airplane, and it's us, you know. That's where that particular one came from. We did a lot of Tim Horton's jokes about the donut chain in Canada and things like that after we became bored with the Canadian content stuff. But all of those Bob and Dougs were improvised because they it was extra programming for the CBC, And Rick and I didn't want to dignify it with having to take this, to spend the time writing it. So we just sat in front of that set and we had the floor director count us in and we made it up. For two minutes. They were all exactly two minutes long. So we'd have a floor dra- director count us in, and then he would give us ten on his hands, nine, eight, seven, six, and we knew we had to wrap it up. And so, um, that was how the show was structured. The Bob and Doug episodes inside the SCTV show. Um, and it was kind of funny because it, it was like happy hour. Because the rest of the cast and crew would go home, and Rick and I would be left there alone in front of this Sitting on the Bob and Doug set. So we would crack real beers and actually, on more than one occasion, you know, uh, fired up a Coleman stove and made little back bacon sandwiches because we just thought,
6: well, who the hell cares? It's just for the CBC, you know. So, where did the McKinseys come from? Did you know anybody like these guys?
11: Well, not specifically, but they were kind of generic characters. I mean, when you're improvising on stage, and that was my background, you know, you see different characters when you're like walking around town and you go, oh, there's a tight ass Wall Street type executive or, you know, there's a banker or there, there's a homeless guy, you know. So you pick these kind of stereotypes and, you know, so we just kind of invented stereotypes for Canadians, but they weren't specifically, you know, parodies of any particular people
6: there are times when I'm in the Michigan upper peninsula where it just feels like I'm in Bob and Doug McKenzie land. So the the language I've always been curious about the language as far as, you know, well, obviously hoser and everything, but were, were words like, you know, they, they horked our clothes was hork like a real thing.
11: Yeah. That was something that, uh, when I was, um, in high school in Canada, I went to grammar school in North Carolina. So, um, I was, uh, nicely objective when I got to Canada. I was able to kind of view it as an outsider because I'd been kind of raised in the South. Born in Canada, but raised in the, in Durham, North Carolina. Um, and when I came back to Canada, there were strange words like horked and, you know, that we we put in. So they were like not unknown in Canada, but they were probably unknown in parts of the U.S., you know. And takeoff was like, you know, F off, but we were on television with, you know, censorship. And so we, we had to invent phrases. And I'd heard hose as a verb, to hose somebody meaning to cheat them. But I'd never heard it as a noun. And calling somebody a hoser, I think, was one of our inventions as well. And this is part of it that I, this is the part that I love. I, I started this discussion talking about language. And, you know, there's a kind of a linguistic basis for the Bob and Doug stuff that made them who they are. And uh, and I think that uh, you know my particular fascination with that was definitely something that played a role in, in, in what we did.
6: I know you've probably talked about this a thousand times before, but I'm going to ask it a thousand and first time. The opening jingle that you do, where did that come from?
11: Well, I improvised that and made that up, but it was based on the fact that I had seen National Film Board documentaries about animals, which was a big part of Canadian programming. And most Canadians were really sick of it and were bored by it. But they would have a kind of a flute while you're watching, playing a kind of a a dirge uh, while you're watching, you know, the mating rituals of the loon or something like that, you know. So that
3: that
11: was just a little ditty that I made up, but it ended up becoming the theme of the show because, you know, as I said, we each show was ten two minutes long and we had our floor director counting us in. And so that became our count. And we were making this up so that while I did that, Rick or I would have time to think of a topic because we we were running into it cold and we didn't always have it. We actually, we never had a topic going in. We didn't know what we were going to do until we actually did it. So it was a stall, you know, it was a classic improvisation stall that gave you a little time to think. But it was a formatting thing too. So it became part of the format of the show and Rick would go, do the thing, do the thing. And I would do it, you know.
6: So what did you think when Bob and Doug McKenzie started to get a following and they started to, in a sense, take off? We were totally blindsided by that. We did not
11: expect it. And um, the first thing that happened was we got a call from a guy while we were in Edmonton shooting saying, "Uh, we want you to come to Winnipeg because the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, which is a football team, the cheerleaders for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers want to take you guys out for drinks. Well, I mean, Rick and I of, were both bull guys, and we thought, how bad could that be, you know? So we flew there for this event, and when we got off the plane, There's like about a 1,000 people cheering for us, and we were totally shocked. Because we didn't think anybody was watching the show, let alone getting off on anything that that we did. And while we were driving to the hotel where we were going to meet the football teams, the cheerleaders for the football team, we saw on several freeway overpasses take off and Hoser had been like spray painted on. And it was like, holy shit, look at this. But we really thought Winnipeg was an aberration, that that was the only place where it was going on. But then it ended up being something that was not only embraced in Canada, but what happened was that we ran short of programming for the American version. Um, because, as I said, we only had half have our cast. Candy was gone, and Andrea Martin and Eugene Levy were gone. So we ended up having to put some of the Bob and Doug's into the American versions, and that was what sparked it. The Americans loved it. It caught on in the U.S. long before it caught on in Canada, and although our first indication of it was this incident in Winnipeg with the uh, Blue Bombers cheerleaders, it was going. It was already cooking in the U.S., and uh, we were just not aware of it, and... Next thing we know, we get an album deal offer, we get uh, Letterman and uh, Tonight Show, and it it just turned into something that neither of us expected.
6: So how did the movie deal kind of come about from this? Was that just purely off of the popularity of the characters?
11: I had an agent in the off-seasons when SCTV wasn't going. I did some writing. I, I wrote a screenplay for Columbia. I wrote uh, a movie for Joel Silver. I wrote uh, Spies Like Us with Dan Aykroyd. Um, it ended up, it, not getting. we wrote it at Universal, but it ended up going many years later to Warner Brothers. It was originally written for Dan and John Belushi. But then it didn't happen, and then later it went to Warner Brothers with Brian Grazer, and then it became, you know, Spies Like Us with Dan and Chevy. So um, I had an agent because I was selling these script ideas, and I was with CAA, and a guy um, who was an agent at CAA at that time named Jack Rabke said he thought that he could... Um, pitch a movie idea if we wrote a script. Now John Candy and Joe Flaherty we're writing a script for Universal called Going Berserk. So it was a real frenetic comedy, and John and Joe were going to star in it. And so um, we we had a, We had sold our uh, a record deal, and the record deal was very lucrative, and we made a lot of money on that record. It went, you know, platinum, double platinum. It went sold so many copies, and, and so uh, we took some of our record royalties. And uh, he, here's what, we were going to write the script ourselves, but Andrew Alexander, the owner of Second City. And Brandon Tartikoff said, you're exclusive to us, to uh, CBC and NBC, and so you can't write a script. But we weren't going to get stopped by that because John and Joe or had already finished their script. So um, we hired a, a screenwriter in L.A. to write Strange Brew. And I came back, it was just awful. It was just like nothing like Bob and Doug. And I remember when we read it, we were just appalled. I had, said, I had said to the guy, when the guy said, what's the story? And I said, I don't know, just use Hamlet. And he said, what do you mean? I said, you know, have, you know, the lead girls uh, went away to school and she comes back and her dad's dead and her her mother has married her uncle and um and Bob and Doug are kind of like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. So that was my sort of uh, marching orders for the scriptwriter, And he did that. He did provide that. Uh, structure at, that I'd given him, but his take on Bob and Doug was just absurd and not at all what we were. So Rick and I decide we're not we gotta we're not going to do this. And then, but my agent Jack Rabke at CAA got the script, sent it out to every studio. He sent it on a Friday. By Wednesday of the next week, we had a deal with MGM, and it was just like what the fuck? <laughs> Wait, Rick. Said, I'm not doing this movie. He said, I'm not doing it. It sucks. It's bad. And I said, Well, let's rewrite it. And he said, They bought the other script. I said, They didn't even read the other script, Rick. Come on, so just, they bought the deal. They didn't. I bet they didn't even read it. So I started rewriting it on my own. And I don't know. I got a page, got to page forty or something like that. And Rick came over and he said, Let me see what you got. He read it. He started laughing. He said, Okay, all right, let's do this. And. um so we ended up doing the movie and we had to leave the show in order to do that, obviously, because, you know, we ended up co-directing it as well because they fired the director and MGM did and said, you guys should direct it. So um, we, we had to quit SCTV.
6: What was that first script like that was so bad?
11: It just wasn't funny. And it didn't, he didn't capture the characters. He didn't understand their voices, you know. So it, it. It had a structure, but it didn't portray Bob and Doug the way they were on the television show. And we we had to write that. So, you know,
6: that must have been kind of a a switch for you. I mean, I know that you're the head writer at SCTV. Obviously, you know how to write. But to write Bob and Doug when you had been improvising them for (laughs) all this time must have been a little bit of a, a, a new situation.
11: That wasn't that hard, actually. Because we had their voices, you know? I mean, a, a certain amount, of, a certain part of writing is improvising, you know? You're sitting there in front of a blank page, and you've got to make something up. And um, especially if it's character stuff, and you have to start, you know, talking in the voices of the characters, either to yourself, if you're writing it alone, or to another writer, if you're writing it with someone. And so, no, it wasn't a difficult challenge for me to go, or Rick, to go from improvising the characters to writing them. We we had their voices, and we knew how to do that. But we had to keep, what well, you know, we had, we, we hit production when we were about two-thirds of the way through the script. So there was a lot of the sort of, if you look at the script really carefully, you'll see, you know, it opens with Bob and Doug in a theater releasing moths. Originally, it was bees but the theater wouldn't let us release these because they were afraid that they would sting, stay there and then sting their real patrons. So it ended up being moths, but releasing moths in a movie to wreck our own movie, that, that's quite different in the beginning than the later stuff with Brewmeister-Smith with Max Lonson. So you, you can see, if you look at it carefully, how that movie was kind of cobbled together uh, with a rewrite You know, more in the front part of the script than in the back part of the script.
6: Now I read one version of the script and it was from I think May of eighty two, mm-hmm. and yeah, very similar in some parts, but then a lot more at the um, the insane asylum, and a lot more this whole thing with uh, Brummeister Smith was actually um, Martin Borman, but he thought he was Martin Borman, but he was actually a former mental patient, Lenny Schultz. W- was that your guys's or is that garnett's first I, draft I, I don't. or?
11: That's definitely not us, but I don't remember if that was uh, Steve DeJarnett or not. You know, um, he
6: was the other, he was the writer.
11: I I don't remember. Um, it could have been. But
6: come on, Dave, it's only thirty two years ago. Come on.
11: <laughs> You're right. I probably have
6: advancing Alzheimer's. You know, I don't know what's wrong. So sad. Should be right there. Immediate recall. Yeah. How did you get Max von Sydow to be in the film? He he was my choice.
11: Uh, I always wanted him because I was a huge fan. And we were in L.A. in Freddie Field's office. He's the president of MGM. And we were talking about the film. And he said, who do you want to play Burmeister Mac- uh, Smith? And I said, Max von Sydow. And he yells to his secretary, you know, um, I need to get uh, Max von Sydow on the phone. He had done this soccer movie with Max von Sydow a few years before, so we knew him. So next thing I know, I'm talking to Max. Max is in Sweden, and Freddie Fields has him on the phone. And he says, uh, Max, I have these guys, Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis. And they have this movie, and uh, they, re- they wrote a part for you. They really want you to be in it. So I'm going to give the phone to Dave, and he's going to tell you what the movie's about. So I ran him through a quick summary of the movie, uh, specifically um, focusing on what his part would be. And there was just total silence as he listened, and I just rattled on and on and on. And then finally, I got to the end, and I stopped, and, and there was a pause, and he says, So, so, I took it to comedy then. And um, we found out later from talking to Max that he called his son, who was in the U.S., and said, I got this offer to do a movie with these guys, Bob and Doug McKenzie, and I've never heard of them. And his son said, Oh, you should do it. They're, they're hot right now. Everybody loves those guys. So on the, on the, the say-so of his son, Max did the movie.
6: What was up with Paul Dooley's eyebrows in the film? <laughs> what do you mean?
11: That they are like, thick or that he moved them a lot? What do you mean, what was up with them?
6: They the are film? so thick. I've never seen his eyebrows that thick in a film before.
11: I was not aware of him thickening his eyebrows. I think those are his real eyebrows. There was a scene in the movie where Max squeezes his head, squeezes Paul Dooley's head, and <laughs> I had... I was doing impersonations of Max um, while we were doing the movie. And I used to do this when I was in high school, impersonating people and then invariably, I'd have a p- bunch of people laughing and then I'd suddenly look and there's like a wash of fear across their face. And the person I was impersonating was invariably behind me. And it was just like, oh God, caught. And that happened with Max, where I was impersonating him for the cast and crew. And suddenly he's behind me. And so, but he was good natured about it. And he said to me, why don't you do some of my off-camera noises?" So I did some of his off-camera line for him so he could go home early. And that made him happy. But there was a, um, he heard me talking about this scene and I, I was doing his voice and he overheard it. And when we got to the scene, he came to me and he said, there was a, there was a rhythm to what you're doing there. I want you to do that for me. I want you to hear that. So I said, okay. So the scene where he grabs Paul Dooley by the head, Max is a big guy, and he has massive hands. And he says to Dooley while he's squeezing his head, I could I could crush your head like a nut, but I won't because I need you. Now go to the loading dock. So there was a, a rhythm to that. I could crush your head like a nut, but I won't. Because I need you. I'm of the loading. There's a rhythm. And Max heard me do that, and he wanted the rhythm. And, when, and he made me do it for him, and he went, i you just fine. And then he did it
3: exactly the way
11: I did it. So I was giving this great actor a line reading, and I was so flattered. I could crush your head
4: like a nut. But I won't. Because I need you. Now. Go
6: to the loading dock. It sounds like there was kind of a competition going on between you and the other guys from SCTV as far as they're working on The Going Berserk, you're working on the the Bob and Nick McKenzie movie. Was there a a little bit of friendly competition going on?
11: Oh, yeah. I mean... Well, the show is unpopular and a failure for its first 3 seasons. And then suddenly for it to catch on and people to start to get some visibility and be offered, you know, um opportunities on other shows, it, it really it changed the playing field quite a bit. Uh, There was definitely a friendly competition going on. It wasn't, um, we're all still good friends, those of us who are alive. You know, God, this changes all the time. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely a friendly competition.
6: You had that one episode of SCTV where it kind of addressed this whole idea of Bob and Doug getting more popular. Was there some truth in that as far as uh, some of the animosity?
11: That was Mike Short. I was Marty's brother. Marty's brother wrote he he wrote the structure of that. Marty's brother was great. I brought him onto the show as a writer and what I loved about Mike was that Mike Mike liked to do jokes about what was going on on the show, not just, you know, abstract pieces that aren't specifically related to the show. And And he liked to get people to the point of cringing, you know? So he did that with that particular episode. And, you know, um, there was some pressure from um, NBC to do a a show that featured Bob and Doug Moore. So, yeah, uh, that was born out of uh, two things, the pressure from the network and Mike Short's uncanny ability to um, get behind the scenes.
6: Is that why there were no other SCTV folks in the uh, Strange Brew? No. The reason
11: there was no other uh, SCTV folks in Strange Brew is because they were all shooting SCTV. We left the show to do it. And, you know, and there was a script... And there was really no specific parts for them. Sure, we could have tailor-made any of the parts, the hockey player and, you know, the girl and anything. Like that, but they were not available. They were doing SCTV. We, we wouldn't have quit if we could have done both. If we could have done SCTV and the movie, we would have done both. But it, was, it ended up becoming a scheduling impossibility, so we had to do uh, we had to quit the show and do the movie.
6: Going back to SCTV real quick, um, what was it like having Ralph Richardson and John Gielgud on the show?
11: It was terrible.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it was
11: really terrible. Okay. we Andrew Alexander wanted guests, and they were in Toronto doing a play called No Man's Land. And so Andrew said um, he had talked to their manager or something and thought that he could get them for 1500 bucks each.
7: It's pretty cheap.
11: And as it turns out, you can get British actors
9: inexpensively
11: because they don't get paid a lot when they do plays and television appearances at home in Britain. So we had the job of writing some sketches for them. And uh, Harold was on the show then, and Harold wrote a really funny piece um, based on the conceit that uh, at that particular time, London Bridge had been bought by an American taken apart stone by stone and reassembled in Arizona. That's a real story. That actually happened. So, And London Bridge is in Arizona now. So Harold wrote a sketch for um, Gilgood and Richardson called Stonehenge Estates. And the premise was that Stonehenge was sold to an Arizona businessman and disassembled from its site stone by stone and reassembled into, in Arizona into condos for old people. And it was a very funny idea, you know. And uh, I wrote a couple of pieces for them. I wrote a like going off um, Eugene and uh, Joe Flaherty's newscasters. I wrote. And now here's Sir John Gill, good with the new, with the weather. Now here's Sir John Gill, good with the weather. And then I just basically wrote a King Lear type. Blow winds, blow, crack your cheeks,
3: <laughs> and
11: it was just. I thought that would have been really funny to see him do that, you know. So we go to their uh, uh, play, their backstage of their play with our sketch ideas. We had about half a dozen of them, and they were like that. I'm giving representatives of what they were like, but but they were all like that. And I thought they were pretty funny. And we pitch these sketches to these guys, and they look at us and go, "Oh, no, 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 no." We want to do a sketch that takes place backstage of our play No Man's Land and we're looking like you mean the dressing room we're sitting in right now like nice fucking imagination guys. <laughs> and so we want to do a we want to do a sketch that takes place backstage of our play No Man's Land and it should feature Sir John's hobby which is crossword puzzles and Sir Ralph's hobby which is motorbike riding. Now that is such an- insane and unwritable assignment that we thought they were kidding at first and but they weren't so that's the sketch that's in the show it's not only awful, their performances are awful. They did a terrible job acting,
3: <laughs> and when we shot it.
11: Harold did most of the writing on that because a lot of us left. We tried to write it, but we couldn't. We didn't know how to write. And Harold just ended up writing a serviceable piece that he thought they would do. And he put me in it. And so I was joking around with Catherine O'Hara on the set. And. Mr. John was distracted by the noise, and he got very angry, and he turned and shouted,
3: please, quiet, we're listening here!
11: And I ducked behind a garbage can and pointed at Catherine O'Hara. That's the level of childishness that was going on while we were working with these two English lords, you know. It was a terrible piece. They did a terrible job acting in it. And, uh, you know, and Andrew Alexander got our first guests on the show for 3000 bucks.
6: I was curious, did you ever meet Bob Hope? Sure, many times. Did you have, have a Hope tape. off with him?
11: I have a great, yeah, I have a great tape of the two of us doing that. Um, a B-roll from Entertainment Tonight is about an hour long. I did three specials with him, and... Um, Got to know him pretty well, and I was at Grace Under Fire one day, this sitcom I was doing for ABC, and we were shooting at uh, CBS Radcliffe, which is in the valley, not far from Bob's home in Toluca Lake. And I got a call from Bob's publicist, a guy named Ward Grant, and he said, Dave, Bob wants you to come over to the house. And I said, all right. You know, I mean, Bob Hope wants me to come over. I'm going to drop what I'm doing and go. So I went over to the house, and... The layout of his house was such that his bedroom was up a little flight of stairs and, um, there's a little, uh, makeup, uh, area out. It was like, almost like a TV studio makeup room outside the bedroom with the makeup lights and everything. And, And the deal was Hope used to get made up at home and then just drive over to NBC, do his shows, then come back. He didn't want to get made up there. He didn't want to spend any more time there than he had to. So. Anyway, I get there, and Ward says, yeah, he bobs upstairs just outside the bedroom in his little makeup area. I went, all right. So I walk up the stairs, and Hope turns to me, and he says, "You like, oh, hi, Dave. What are you doing here? And I said, well, Ward said you wanted me to come over. And he looks at me, and he goes, yeah? Well, what do you want? And it was he was like 89 or 90 at this point. And I knew better than to get into it with an old guy where, you know, he goes, says, what do you want? And I go, no, no. You said you wanted me to come over. Now you're saying, what What do you want? That makes no sense. So when he said, what do you want? I said, I want to see that picture you got of General Patton pissing in the Rhine. I'd heard about this picture. It was a very famous photo. And hope the minute I said that, Bob just lit up. He was just like, he said, you heard about that? Come here, I'll show you. And he walked me over. And outside his bedroom, he's got this double wall of photos of just him with presidents and all types of people, and he and he says he said there were three of these pictures, these patent pictures, and the Patton family wanted them back, and, and and he said they got the other two. He said they wanted this one, and I, I and I never gave it to them, and I never will. And he he says he says here's the history. He said Patton said that he would cut a swath through Hitler's Europe, and he would piss in his ride. And he said now I got the picture of him doing it. Look at this, and there there's a picture of General George. Armstrong Custer with his twin colts and his dick out pissing in the ring. And it's just hilarious that Bob had that. And then right after that, he said that, he pointed another picture. He said, this is Neil Armstrong. He did my special right after he got back from the moon. And it was just, you know, Bob with presidents, Bob with astronauts, Bob with the photos of General Patton. It, it was, I thought he was a fascinating guy. And, uh, you know, I ended up doing some, I ended up, you know, having some moments with him when he was getting older and it was kind of sad and I felt really bad and it was awkward. And, and then I got this really great tape of the two of us talking and reminiscing about the first time we met, which was in Toronto and, and me doing Hope for Hope on camera. I've got all that on video. It's
6: amazing. In your book, you, you talked about some of the SCTV outtakes, that you just have scads of these outtakes. Will those ever see the light of day? No, because
11: what happened was that Global bulk erased them, and then um, I don't know what happened in Edmonton. I had two boxes of them for a while, and I lost them in one of my moves. I don't know where they ended up going. But Global used to run the uh, feed like the whole time, so the cameras were always hot. So we'd do a take, and then, you know, they would, uh, the cameras would keep rolling. And they, then you'd hear all the griping and bitching and complaining and the personal stuff and the off color stories and things like that. So I had two boxes of those big reels from Global, but I lost them. So, yeah, yeah, your assessment is they will never see the light of day. There was never anything that was saved by anybody.
6: Can you tell me a little bit about how the new show kind of came about? Sure. Lauren Michaels left SNL. Uh, after
11: a couple of years, I guess no more than that, six years, and then um, he had some downtime. NBC didn't want to let the five, uh, sorry, didn't want to let the f- franchise go, so they hired other producers, including Dick Abruzzo, to produce the show after um, Lauren left. And then in 1983, Lauren decided that he wanted to do another show, and he uh, called me and asked me to be part of it, and flew me down to New York and took me to the fights with him and Buck Henry and took me out for dinner with Steve Martin, you know, really wined and dined me. And so I said, yeah, sure, I can do it. And um, uh, it was, he put together probably the best writing room that I've ever been in. It was Franken and Davis, George Myers, who ended up being one of the key guys on The Simpsons, Jack Handy, who wrote Those Deep Thoughts, um, Gamel and Pross, who did... Seinfeld and um, The Simpsons, Buck Henry, uh, um, just an incredible room of really, really brilliant writers. But the problem was the show was on Friday nights at 10 o'clock, and sketch comedy is hard enough to sell at any time in primetime, but Friday night, when our youthful audience would all be out, was just death, and so the show just never made it. We did 12 of those things, and that was it.
6: What happened with uh,
11: the sequel with Homebrew? That was a disaster. I lost $2 million on that. I had the producing partners that were just bandits. And, uh, I had you know, documents and legal agreements and papers, but they were lawyers, and it ended up being a disaster and um, we got to through within i paid for pre-production and we got to 3 days before principal photography and um, found out that they the money that they said they were going to have for production wasn't there and it was just awful had to pay off everyone sets were built cast was in and had to send everybody home and it was just horrible probably one of the worst experiences of my
6: life I had read what the movie was supposed to be, or at least, you know, what's out there on the internet, which probably came from another interview with you. Did that kind of morph into what the Bob and Doug animated show became? Because that whole idea of Bob and Doug as Garbage Men seems to be the only thing that ties them together for me.
3: Yeah,
11: I think, I don't remember, uh, in at least the first drafts of the live-action movie, they weren't Garbage Men. They might have been in a later draft. But really, for the animated series, we had to invent, Bob and Doug had primarily existed on their set, and then when we did the movie, we entered a kind of a full reality of Brewmeister Smith and his mad plan to take over the world with his spike beer. So to do the television animated show, we had to invent a reality for Bob and Doug, What? where did they live? Why did they live together? Who who were their friends? Where did they work? Where did they hang out? We had to invent all of that. And I think we did a good job. There's, you know, I've showed those animated shows to people who I think are funny and are a good judge of comedy. And, um, they, they thought it was, they were good. They thought that the, the shows were actually pretty good. But here again, we got screwed because, you know, I set this up with financing, like Canadian financing. And, um, Uh, the network global went into bankruptcy protection in the middle of production. it's like, when does that ever happen? And and the way you do the tax credit films in Canada is you you make a deal with a network for a license fee. and, uh, And then you usually have some other buyer, like a U.S. partner or something like that. And then the bank... Uh, does interim financing, networks will will not pay you all your money up front. They'll give you a license fee and they'll say, okay, so we'll give you, you know, 10% on commencement and 20% on delivery of the first episode and blah, blah, blah. So you can't really do a production that way because you've got people on weekly salaries and, you know, you're burning cash faster than the network will advance it to you. So the way to solve that is to get a bank to take the paper for the uh, deal with the network and bank it and then they will interim finance and they charge the interest on that but you know it, it's a doable deal well global went into bankruptcy protection the middle of production and the bank decided not to take their paper in the middle of production so I ended up having to finance some of that myself and I uh, probably I'm probably still out to this day about half a million bucks on that that show so we weren't able to sell it in the US. I had a terrible, agent, a terrible sales agent that did an awful job in trying to sell it here. And, um, and that's it. I moved on to other stuff. I never really you know cried in my milk or spent a lot of time looking over my shoulder. I just kept going and just move on, come up with another idea and sell that. So
6: yeah, that's what happened with that. Are those available anyplace? Because I looked around and could not find anything other than just a couple of clips.
11: We, we made Canada geo block the U.S. because I wanted to be able to sell it here in the U.S. I was out half a million bucks. I wanted to get some of that money back. I made them geo block it, and then a few people put it up on uh, YouTube, and I went after them, and YouTube pulled it all down. So they're just not available anywhere. I've got all 15 shows, and I would love to sell them to somebody, but I'm not going to give them away. You
6: know, where did the idea of doing Jack Palance as the misunderstood star of a sitcom come from?
11: (laughs) Okay, Uh, by the time I got that was on the Dave Thomas show for CBS. And by the time I got to that show, I was doing impersonations that I'd never dreamed of doing because I met this guy named Kevin Haney, who was a brilliant makeup guy. And he was able to he had Jack Palance's life mask. And he had mine. So he could basically create prosthetics and just drop Jack's face on top of my face. So I was able to...
10: uh, Jack
11: always had a a kind of a breathy voice where he did that kind of talk. And uh, I, I understood how to do his voice. And then it occurred to me that it would be a real... A, a funny example of bad casting to put Jack in a sitcom <laughs> and have him as a typical, because he was such a scary guy. He looked scary. He acted scary, you know, in, in the Billy Crystal um, Western movies. that I forget what they were called. Do you remember uh, City Slickers. Yeah, yeah, City Slickers.
3: Jack was scary
11: in that, you know, and even when he was on the Oscars and he did his one-handed push-ups, he was scary. Jack was always a scary guy. So to put a scary guy like that in a sitcom struck me as be very funny, and that's why I did that.
6: Whatever happened to the Reed Fleming World's Toughest Milkman project?
11: There's a guy named Dave Boswell who created this character, and he's a comic book artist in Vancouver. And um, he sent me a copy of his comic, and I saw it. I thought it was hilarious. So I optioned it from him. This was right after Strange Group. And I went to MGM and asked them if they would finance a script. So I actually ended up writing a script and tried to get it going, but um, I couldn't get it going. And then Dave sold the rights to Warner's and unfortunately that was his mistake because he did that himself. The rights deal I did was a rights deal that allowed him to get his character rights back if they uh, elected not to do it. The deal he made with Warners tied up the character rights in perpetuity so although he got paid for a script he got screwed long term because you know once a studio owns a property like that outright they never give it up and well, here's an example. I, I I understood the legality of this and you know, when we did Strange Brew we didn't give MGM the rights to the characters. We already had them on S E T V and we already had them on uh Polygram Records, so we licensed the characters uh to MGM for the movie only so that they didn't own them and we could still do them afterwards. Because you know we we understood how to do that legally, and when we did, we Rick and I were asked to do Brother Bear for Disney. The producers wanted Bob and Doug, and I said, uh, "We're not going to give you Bob and Doug because the Disney legal team are very, very um, aggressive, and they will just devour the characters and own them in per- perpetuity. Not going to do that." And they said, "Well, we really want the characters." So finally, we ended up on language contract language. I said. They said we'll give you a, a, you know exclusions in the contract that says that you know um, that Disney is not going to own the McKenzie brothers. I said no. I said their legal team will bypass all that and own it anyway. I said here's the only way we'll do it. You must describe the characters in the contract as two nondescript voices performed by Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis. The word McKenzie can never appear in the Disney contracts, and so that was how we ended up doing that. So we did voices that were similar to Bob and Doug for the two mooses, but they were not Bob and Doug. Um, That was not something we were prepared to give to the Disney company. And that's a mistake, sadly, that Dave Boswell made with Reed Fleming, and now he can't do anything with it because Warners doesn't want to do anything with it, and they won't let him do anything with it.
6: Any juicy stories from your time on Grace Under Pressure that you can legally tell? Uh, Grace Under Fire. Grace Grace Under Under Fire, Fire. okay.
11: Yeah. Um,
6: No, unfortunately, I
11: can't legally tell any juicy stories at that time. But it was... I I will just tell you one thing that people said to me, what what was, she had a kind of a drug problem and an alcohol problem, and I said, no, I said, I've worked with people on drugs and alcohol, and that was on her, her problem was that she was insane, and then she enhanced it with drugs and alcohol, and that, that's what made her impossible to deal with, you know, so, yeah, it was... It was a sad thing because the show had tremendous momentum and it was number one in its reruns in the first summer on ABC at a time when, you know, being number one meant like 30 or 40 million people were watching. And um, that's not the case anymore with the splintered uh, and fragmentation of the audiences. But um, it was consistently top 10 for the first two years. Now, a show that has that kind of momentum can go for 10, can go for 10 years, but this show blew up in its fifth season just because of the um, antics of our, um, our lead star.
6: So, yeah, it's a
11: shame. It's a shame.
6: How did you come to work on Arrested Development?
11: Mitch Hurwitz and Jimmy Vallely are friends of mine, and they called me up and they said, we got a part for you on Arrested Development. And I said, oh yeah, what is it? They said, it's Charlie Theron's uncle. And I thought, oh, how bad could that be? All right, I'm going to do it. I end up having a great time working with her. She is unbelievable. She is such a smart girl, really professional and very, very funny, very smart. And uh, I think an excellent actress. So when I met her, when I met her, I, somebody said, oh, Dave, this is Charlize. And I, and I shook her, hello. And I went, oh, my God. And she said, what? And I said, I thought you were beautiful and monster, but this is ridiculous.
3: <laughs>
11: she, laughed. she laughed. She thought that was very funny. So, we hit it off and had a great time and so, you know, I really enjoyed that. And you know, those guys are good writers. The show is a good show and um I had a good time.
6: Uh what are your thoughts on Rick Moranis' retirement? I I don't know.
11: I mean, every, everyone should be allowed to do what they want to do, you know? And I, I don't have any thoughts on people doing stuff like that. It's like, okay, I just accept it like the weather. You know, you come out, it's raining, you put on a raincoat. You come out, it's sunny, you go, okay, fine, I don't need a raincoat. I I really don't have any thoughts. Um, I enjoyed working with him, and the fact that he's not working now is definitely his choice. He did a lot of stuff. He gave a lot to the business, and he has a right to do whatever he wants to do.
6: All right, here's another one from the listeners. What's your favorite beer? Actually, it's Newcastle,
11: and... I just love that dark, rich taste, and um, that is my favorite beer by far. Beer is not my favorite alcohol, my favorite alcohols. It's kind of a toss-up between red wine and uh, some various vodka drinks. Uh, I like vodka a lot, but um, but if I was going to have a beer, it would be a Newcastle.
6: Not a Molson. I don't know. Yeah,
11: not a Molson. It would be a Newcastle. You asked me if it was what my favorite beer is, and then to say... Would I drink a all Well, I guess I would drink a Molson, but, I, but it wouldn't be my favorite, you know?
6: What are you currently working on at uh, Animax Entertainment? We just finished a bunch of stuff for Disney. And
11: I'm not actually there. I'm a, at uh, Fox writing. I'm a consulting producer on a show called Bones. And so uh Animax is doing stuff without me. They're doing a lot of um uh they're doing a bunch of stuff. Um I, I don't even know.
3: <laughs>
11: <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know what the latest stuff is. They're doing helps good stuff. I know that and there's like three divisions of it now. And um, Andy Bain and I, who created the company, um, hired a guy named Michael Bellavia to run it. So Michael's essentially running it now. And um, uh, my daughter does some work for uh, Animax. She would be much better at telling you what they're doing than, I, than me. <laughs> uh, that's I'm a real figurehead owner. Uh, I'm not really <laughs> actively involved.
6: Now, you're not just... Um... Consulting producer over there, you're also acting on episodes. Did I see that you directed some episodes too
11: no i, I no I have not directed. I only acted I acted on one, uh, one one episode. I'm having a great time though because it's our procedural crime stuff trying to figure out you know bone clues and how forensic anthropologists can solve crimes. i It's a whole new type of writing. Uh, I'm mean, having a great time, and I, Dan Aykroyd, and I sold a pilot to TBS. So um, we handed that in just recently, and they they liked it. And so we're waiting to see what happens with that.
1: Something wrong with this beer, eh? Take off, do it, do it. Oh, good day. I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother Doug. How's it going, eh? we We're those guys who talk over songs and record. Remember? Yeah, here's another one. Beauty, eh? Good day. Uh, We're back. I'm Doug McKenzie. I'm his brother, Bob. Yeah, there he is over there. Okay, we're guest DJs, eh? Yeah. Okay, to everyone who got bored with this halfway and tuned out, well, they're not listening anyway. To all those uh, loyal listeners who are still here, good good day. Or to those people who just like, can you imagine like you come home, eh? Yeah. And you put on a radio and you're just like, you know, that's the thing, eh? It's like at any given time, there's people turning things on, okay? Yeah. And, like, you can really deek out, eh? Because, like, what if a guy's just turning it on now? And we're, like, laughing real hard and he thinks he missed the joke, eh? Okay, guy's turn it on now. <laughs> that was hysterical. Yeah, that was real funny. Oh, that was one of the greatest things that ever happened. What was? That thing. What? Thing? That just happened. Tell me. Oh, jeez, you blew it. How? The guy thought, did he miss something? Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Boy, was that ever good. Yeah.
6: We've got one more interview this episode. This is turning into another epic for the projection booth. This time, it's with Pam herself, Lynn Griffin. Let's go ahead and roll that tape. How did you get into the business?
0: Well, my dad was a high-fashion photographer. He won the Canadian Photographer of the Year in 1966, and he had been taking photographs of me ever since I was in diapers and even used me in some of his print work um i actually had billboards all over toronto at one point for a shoe store and i was on the cover of my actual grade 4 Beller, um, which led to a lot of abuse from my fellow students who like to, you know, draw horns and a pitchfork and beards on me and stuff. It was kind of an embarrassing year. And anyway, so he he took many many photographs of me. Um, my mother was an actress and then became a talent agent. And my sister is now running my mother's talent agency when my mother passed away, it's sort of in my blood. I probably didn't have much of a choice I started um I started acting like doing television commercials when I was very young and then I did some television series and which led to me pursuing like a theater career and going on to you know playing some major festivals here of Stratford and Shaw and I just got, I just was born into it I guess. <laughs>
6: Now, you were in some really big horror films when you started out Black Christmas. It's still legendary. I
0: know, and and it's been so wonderful since, uh, sort of really since... Facebook started and people can find you and now I go to conventions. I'm actually going to the one tomorrow here in Toronto called the Festival of Fear to do a you know, a panel and a Q and A and sign autographs. It's been really cool to meet all these fans and and now um a movie that I, I did called Curtains has just had a new brand new DVD and Blu-ray release and sort of that's kind of come out of the woodwork it's opened up like a whole new career for me that people have rediscovered these films and i'm very very excited about it i mean they've got real kind of cult followings
6: so how did you get approached for uh strange brew
0: um i i auditioned uh you know like a regular old audition For, actually, for Dave Thomas, I remember in the audition him saying, Oh, gosh, you remind me so much of my wife, Pam. So I guess that's why he cast me. I don't remember that Rick was in the audition, but it was certainly Dave. What an incredible, (laughs) incredible time um, being directed by the two of them.
6: Yeah, what was it like on set?
0: You know, I was sort of, you know, being the straight man. And so... I had to deliver like fairly straight stuff, but with the two of them both directing and obviously in the scenes with me, my hardest job was trying to keep a straight face and deliver what I had to do. Sometimes I just couldn't do it. And I said, this line is just too complicated because I can't say it without laughing. It was really quite delightful. And, you know, we shot at a beautiful time of year here in Toronto. And, you know, it was really, there we were recreating the Oktoberfest and all the beer drinking. And, yeah, it, it just was a really, really delightful time. I mean, they could be, well, particularly Rick could be fairly serious at times. But most of the time, it was just sort of fun, improv, like giggling about trying to be serious when I had to be and and also I mean getting to work with Max Fonsito was pretty amazing and having him actually carry me at one time we all called him Uncle Max. He's not a small man no, at all. No, he's very very tall. He's very tall. And very, very personable. And, you know, we'd get him, we'd sit him down at our lunch hours and get him to talk about, like, Ingmar Bergman. And, you know, that was pretty fascinating. And I I still, to this day, I'm not really sure how they convinced him to be in this film.
6: Now, were you familiar with Bob and Doug before this project? Oh, yes,
0: of course. I mean, I was a huge SCTV fan. And I had actually, I mean, at one point I'd actually shot an episode of it where I was sort of being... It was funny. I was actually the... We were doing a takeoff of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and we were doing it a la Flashdance, where I was Andrea Martin's acting double. Not dancing double, right? Get it? Because obviously she was supposed to be playing the character who couldn't act, and I was brought in to be the actor.
5: Here's Jennifer Beals in a very dramatic scene from Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. (laughs)
12: For a long time, i wanted to tell you what I think, Brick. You're weak. You're low down. You're lazy. It's getting hot in here. I'm burning up. I'm getting heated up. I'm going to cool myself off. Finish what I have to tell you. Skipper and I made love. (laughs) Love, you could call
3: it. Because it made us both feel closer to you. You,
1: superior creature. You, glorified being. We made love to each other. To dream it was you.
12: Yes. Yes. Truth. Truth. And that's just about how I see it.
5: Now, oh, wait a minute. That sure didn't look like you doing that dramatic scene.
12: Well, that's the beauty of it, Sammy. You see, for all the difficult acting parts, I had a double standing in for me.
5: Well, when can we expect a full-time, you know, complete performance from you?
12: Well, I don't know, Sammy. Uh, very soon, I'm going to be opening on Broadway in the Ginger Rogers story. And for that, I have a double for my acting and a double for my singing and a double for my dancing. <laughs> it's causing hellish nightmares for the crew and everything. And, you know, those New York audiences, oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, they just uh they really don't, uh, well, they're not very patient with, well, I, oh. Sammy, I
0: have to run now. Thank you very much.
1: All right. Jennifer Beals, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Oh, I knew them all very well. I'd actually shot some other crazy series. I can't even remember what it was, and... Martin Short was in it, and Andrea Martin was in it, and I think we were all dressed... I remember being dressed up in sort of black leotards with feathers sewn all over them, but I can't really remember why we were doing that. Some strange sci-fi comedy thing. (laughs) So I knew a lot of them, you know, just by association by having like brief encounters of working with them and just being a huge, huge fan. I mean, I love, love, love that show and all the incredible impersonations and incarnations and the comedy of it was great.
6: What was that kind of Toronto acting scene like back then?
0: It still remains pretty small and tight and you know, there's I, I mean, everybody does sort of know each other. It's so different because, you know, I spent sort of, I spent 12 years living in Hollywood and, uh, you know, which is so massive and you just don't get to know everyone and and here you still do. I mean, the, the sad part was being away for 12 years and living in L.A., I, I sort of missed my friends here very much and what was going on when I left. I mean, there was a very, very strong um, uh, television and film industry at that point. And of course, you know, Andrea was in Black Christmas with me as well. So I knew Andrea from working there. But, you know, I as I said, I always love nepotism when it works in my favor. You know, if you know people and they're willing to hire you because you've worked with them before, it's still very, very much like that. Small, tight, very protective of each other. You know, back in those days, I guess... There was a lot more Canadian film being done and still now, I mean, I still think Canada is one of the best places for comedy. Some of the comedians that have come up out of this training ground, very fertile training ground, are just terrific. I mean, those were the days, I mean, my mom actually did a play with John Candy at one point. Really kind of, uh, you know, kind of special, small, and it's still not that big. It's still, you know, we still all kind of know each other and run into each other now and then, except for all the expats now.
6: So you have the distinction that not too many women have as far as being able to play, say that you played Hamlet.
0: Yeah, Pamlet, I call it. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's true. (laughs) No, I don't get cast as men very often, but no. Uh, but, But yeah, I love it when I talk to people about, you know, if they say they haven't you know <laughs> amazingly the very few people in the world who haven't seen strange brew when they ask me what it's about and i say well it's loosely based on hamlet and they're very confused i said you know like if bob and doug mckenzie or rosencrantz and guildenstern and i'm playing hamlet and you know my uncle kills my father it just goes on and on and marries my mother it's very similar elsinore brewery elsinore castle I mean, you know, I'm not sure everybody really gets that reference when they see it, if they're not, you know familiar with Shakespeare, but I certainly did at the time. I mean, at the time, I was working at the Stratford Festival. I was playing all those, you know, weeping ingenues in Shakespeare at the, at the Stratford Festival, so it was kind of a departure for me to do comedy.
6: And you had said that uh, they were okay with some improv on the set.
0: Oh, God. Well, they were improving all the time. I think in my files somewhere, actually, I know I do, I still have, like, the original scripts, of Strange Brew. And I bet, you know, if, if I actually sat down and read it again and then compared it to what actually ended up on screen, there was a lot of improv. I mean, I don't really remember. I In the scene where Rick and I are in the beer tank, he says, is it getting warm in here or something like that? Uh, and I try to keep a straight face. Because I don't, I don't think any of those lines were really written into the script. I think it was like in the moment, and because uh, you know, I, and I remember very, very clearly at the end of the film in the final scene, I so wanted to tell them to take off, eh? and it wasn't written in the script. And I said, I'm just dying to be able for Pam to be able to turn and tell you to take off. It, we managed to, I managed to get that in, even though I had you know lots of other dialogue they wanted me to say. But I said, I just want you to, I just want to do that. The other funny thing was I didn't drive when I did that movie and, you know, my very first scene is driving the car into the fence and, <laughs> and trying to drive off. And it is some funny memories of things like that, that I just go, I have to drive? And they would just joke and joke and say, well, you know, we can get a tow truck to pull you. And I was going, no, no, really, I'll let me drive, especially if I have to crash into the fence, I'll be able to do that easily. It was very fun. I mean, it was very lighthearted.
6: How did you get away with not driving for so many years?
0: I don't really know. Well, I mean, it started as kind of a, you know, a long, sad story that I I was taking driving lessons with a a boyfriend when I I was 16 and ended up we were kind of driving and he wanted me to make a left hand turn and the light turned uh, amber and he said, go, go, go now. And I went and somebody ran the light the other way and hit the car. So hit him and injured him a little bit. So it kind of freaked me out, and I was like, oh, I don't want to drive. My experience with it when I was learning was really ah, terrible. I had an accident, you know, practically the first few weeks I was learning to drive. And then I just ended up having all these, like, wonderful boyfriends who would drive me everywhere. And, you know, when I was younger, my mom drove me everywhere to all my auditions and all my jobs and stuff. And it wasn't until I moved to L.A., which I did in, I don't know, what year did I move to L.A., 82? No, 80, anyway, somewhere around there, that I realized if if I was going to survive at all in L.A., I would have to learn to drive. So I took a nervous driving course in L.A., you know, and I was living on Wonderland Avenue. So it was all like hills and crazy, you know, turns and twists, Mulholland Drive. And I took this course, and you know literally the first day the guy like took me on the freeway, and I was freaking out and then he, and then he took me to a he told me to pull over I think on Ventura Boulevard and go into a bakery and buy a Danish and a coffee and then he said, get back in the car and drink the coffee and eat the Danish while you're driving because that's what you will do when you're driving to auditions all over l a You will have to be able to eat and drive at the same time and possibly even put on mascara, so I learned the really like, I learned the hard way. I mean, I was like, oh, my God, talk about like diving in the deep end. But my mom was so pleased with me. She actually, when I went to take my driving test, she was staying with me in L.A. at the time. And when I came home, she was on her knees praying that I would pass. She said, you can't, you can't survive in L.A. I was, like, trying to take cabs. I was trying to call a taxi in L.A. It's nuts. What
6: was it like working with Paul Dooley on Strange Brew? Oh, Girl? he's a
0: charmer. What a charmer he was. I mean, just lovely, lovely people. I mean, you know, I knew I, I knew of him very well. I'd seen a lot of his films. As I said, I was really impressed with the cast that they pulled together, Um that that kind of surprised me that there were really like really seriously well-known influential important actors that were agree- agreeing to do this film that at the time you know if you didn't know Great White North and the segments on SCTV how would they you know I guess they sold the idea to these actors on the strength of the script but he, he was really he was really fun it's, it's just those sort of older actors that I mean older like now older I'm older older um but these are actors that come from like kind of great stage backgrounds as well, and I've had a lot a lot of experience. It was very fun doing the dining room table scene. I remember he was cracking a lot of jokes and it's so funny because I still run into the actress who plays my who played my mom who's uh, Jill Frappier who's a, a Toronto actress but now the, like it's hilarious we audition for the same roles like're and I go wait a minute you played my mom and now we're both up for the same part that's kind of weird either you know I've aged tremendously and you haven't aged at all or something
6: Let's think that she's uh, well preserved Yes,
0: exactly God yeah and she even gets parts of it over me, too. So God bless her.
6: You said that you're uh, currently doing a show right now? Yes,
0: I'm, uh, I'm working with a new young company, and we're doing a production of Hedda Gabler. But it's sort of, you know, Ibsen meets Tim Burton. Uh, very, like, interesting, crazy, new approach, dark, kind of twisted. I was very happy to work on the set as well, because we've turned the whole into a terrarium and there are bugs and bug sounds and it's very, very cool. It reminds me very much of a, sort of a David Lynch or Tim Burton approach to this, you know, 100-year-old dusty classic that we've really sort and we've made it very hot and sexy too. We're just getting on our feet now. We're just, um, we just opened on Tuesday night and we've had three performances and we keep going for uh, into September and hopefully we'll start getting really, really big houses, because it's always hard to get independent theatre to get people to know what's going on in Toronto in the beginning, and then, you know, the final weekend there's not a seat to be had. It's very fun. I've been doing a lot of independent theatre in Toronto this year, and you know, some 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 good television, some film stuff, but it's been a lot, real resurgence of the smaller theatre companies, uh, young actors starting their own theatre companies, and I really wanted to sign a pursues that again and sort of get into that Toronto uh, indie scene because it was so exciting. I mean, doing it other than doing it in like the Toronto Fringe Festival, which is always fun. And I actually, my husband was in a, a Fringe Festival show. My my husband is actually Sean Sullivan, who was in Wayne's World and the Howling, well, how, which Howling, honey? Howling, howling Six, The Freaks, Back to the Future 3. Oh, and yes, and he played the Drunk friend in Wayne's world, so um but we met in a play in San Diego um, and then um and we lived there for quite a long time, and then we finally I brought him back up to Canada, and he seems to like it here except for shoveling snow in the driveway in February
6: <laughs> so when you go to the uh, festival of fear this weekend, do you think you'll get any strange brew fans or will they all be curtains and black Christmas?
0: I always do. It's it's interesting because when I was doing like just what I thought were, you know, basically the straight horror conventions, someone would always come up to me, you know, with some poster or other and I was going, "Oh, well, you know, I don't know. wake up Lynn, maybe you should bring some strange brew stuff as as well." It's funny when you do, uh, like, horror conventions, because you see, like, all the other, you know, Slasher and Chainsaw, ooh, Freddy, whatever. And then occasionally you'll see somebody that you go, oh, my God, so you were in the first Back to the Future. Okay, how does that sort of translate as a horror film? But... But you know that they do. I mean, I, it is funny because even if um, you know there's maybe like an episode of a series that they considered horror. You know, sometimes they show up with something from like there's a series here called Lost Girl, and they consider that sort of horror, even though it's mostly you know vampires and succubus and all that. But the the the, the, the genre of the fans is is wide and. You know, there's some people that come and say, oh my God, I saw you in Anne of Green Gables or Wind at My Back and I have a photograph from that. And you're like, really? Oh, well, okay. I had never thought of that. So now I'm sort of covering Strange Brew, Black Christmas, curtains, all in the same. I at least have my merchandise from those three films. Oh, and wasn't it great of Rue Morgue to do the cover story on Curtains? That was fantastic. I was so happy. I I did like, we had a big screening at a theater here, so I got to see it on a big screen. I mean, that's the transfer is absolutely magnificent and um, you know the fact that they did this great cover story on you know it's really going to help I think promote the film and people discover that film visit you know it was an interesting project which got shelved for about two years I mean we shot it and then you know I kept going I wonder when they're going to release that film and they never did and then we were called in to do reshoots. we changed the ending of it we shot some new scenes and, and now to have it all these years later find an audiences. Uh, it's really terrific. I'm very excited about it. And and just because it looks so beautiful. I mean, there was this awful kind of VHS bootleg out of of it that was just like so muddy and terrible that it just thrills me that someone would actually, that Synapse took the time to actually do it such a beautiful job. And, and Leslie Donaldson and I got together in, in New York and did a crazy commentary because we're like really good friends and so we were just laughing at memories that we were sharing on the commentary and (laughs) I don't know, I haven't heard it yet so I don't know how... uh... how silly or racy we got, but, you know, there was certainly stuff in it that we, because we hadn't seen it on a big screen for a long time, and memories kept flooding back, and some funny uh, stories surprising us. That's another
6: one with a really amazing cast. I mean, John Vernon and Michael Wincott, more chicken, you know.
0: It's so funny. I did a play with um, Michael Wincott way, way back in the day, probably like late 70s, and he just played like a punk kid in it, and I thought he was so good at the time, and I I just went, hmm, I wonder if this kid's really going to go somewhere. You know, because his brother is an actor too, Jeff, uh, who lives in New York. And to see what Michael became because I went where did he get that voice all of a sudden that voice that he has now and uh, just this wonderful wonderful career that he's developed and really interesting characters that he's playing you know because he was this sweet young I I don't know probably about 16 when he did this play with me back in the day
1: yeah that voice is killer keep tuned eh because we're going to try and get them to play Stairway to Heaven because that's that's why we agreed to do this yeah And our hit single, too. And while you're doing that, I'm going out to play Pac-Man.
6: Welcome back. We're talking about Strange Brew and Bob and Doug McKenzie. Not only were Bob and Doug on SCTV and in Strange Brew, but they made appearances in some other media, such as commercials and cartoons. So, have you guys ever seen Brother Bear, where they played Rut and Took?
10: no
8: I have not seen Brother Bear I know what it is because I worked in a video store but I I never took the time to watch it
6: my wife watched it and I watched it with her one of those kind of things I was laughing every time Rut and Took were on screen because they're these two Canadian moose or mises I'm not sure how you pluralize that but yeah that that was pretty much the highlight of the film for me so you want to play I Spy Mm, Kate. I'll go first okay I spy
5: something green. Tree. Oh. my turn. Yeah.
1: Okay. I spy something tall.
9: Tree. Okay.
5: Uh, I spy something with bark. Tree. Ah. Oh.
1: Okay. I spy something uh, a vertical log. Tree. Yeah. Okay. I spy something. Oh. Okay, my turn. Tree. No, I got No, oh, it. it counts. I didn't even spy anything. It counts.
3: Okay.
6: Tree. Ah, let's
5: play something
6: else. Did you guys ever see the, they were on some commercials too. They were on some Molson commercials and Pizza Hut commercials. I, I like barely remember the Molson commercials, but I didn't remember.
7: They didn't want any part of it because of the mouse in the bottle reference. Exactly. Yeah. That was my Wikipedia research.
6: Good research, yeah, yeah. man. Yeah, nice. Yeah, no they they pulled out and even the uh, it's really funny because the store where they buy the beer they had to cover the sign up it was some other store and they just put up a sign that said the beer store and then like a few years later that chain turned their <laughs> turned themselves into the beer store like that is now the real name of the store you go across you know for me I I go across the bridge to Canada and I see the beer store and I just you know, I was laughing. It's like, oh, it's just like Bob and Doug.
7: That's corporations <laughs> for you, right there. You cannot use our name. It's making money. We will use your name.
6: They also did a animated show, which, Skiz, I know you have this on DVD. Did you see the little animated thing that they have on there?
8: Yeah, I was wondering. I mean, I don't know much about the animated show. I'm wondering if, if all the episodes are available somewhere.
6: That's something that I'm going to have to ask Dave Thomas about, too.
8: Because, yeah, I looked out online, and I
6: managed to find three episodes, but nothing would download for me. I could not find enough people that were willing to share those episodes. And then there was this whole thing, too. I was looking it up like Craig. I was looking up um, Wikipedia, and there were apparently two seasons of the show, and one season, like, nobody has ever seen. <laughs> so it's like, does this thing exist? Does it not exist? Are there 15 episodes? Are there 10 episodes? There's a little promo on the Strange Brew DVD. It's about what 5 7 minutes long and it's just basically an intro for what the television show could be like what the animated show could be like and it's fitting that Craig you called them cartoon characters earlier because they really kind of do fit well into this animated
7: world yeah and i wasn't even i didn't even mean that in a degrading way it's just it was you know sketch sketch characters can be full and deep but if they're still step sketch characters they come they can come off as cartoons and you know in a different medium or, you know, a a paradigm of a film, you know, where you're, there's more time and you expect development stuff. And I thought, wow, I don't know one thing about them that I didn't know at the beginning of the movie, which is, I mean, you could say the same thing about Dumb and Dumber. I said, well, no, that's not true. Actually, there was, there was development there, you know? I have no point.
8: It's a little off topic, but but this is making me think of uh, the Fishing with Gandhi and Cow Monkey films. I forget the names of those brothers, but they were developing their characters into an animated series at some point, too. And I don't know if that ever happened, but just like Bob and Doug. Roy I'm and Gil. That. Yeah, and they were also based on Rosencrantz
6: and Gilderstein. Yeah, I didn't really? know that.
7: Yeah. An endless font of Saturday morning.
6: Exactly. Wait till next week when we talk about Rosencrantz and Gilder Stern are dead.
7: Well, yeah, so. that's gonna be that's gonna be wild.
6: As I was also doing my internet research, I found out that there was supposed to be a sequel to Bob and Doug. We had talked earlier that there never was a, a another adventure of Bob and Doug McKenzie. And this one was supposed to be called Homebrew. And I'll just I'll go ahead and I'll just read what I know about it. A sequel to the film entitled Homebrew was planned for production in nineteen ninety nine one financing fell through at the last minute. Co-written by Dave Thomas and Paul Flaherty, Flaherty was also going to direct, and Dan Aykroyd was on board to play the part of Rick Ripple. Principal photography was to begin on July 19, 1999, in Toronto, and at one point, Todd McFarlane was to step in as, as executive producer to revive financing for the film, but never followed through. I think that Paul Flaherty is related to Joe Flaherty.
7: Yeah, I think they're brothers, right?
6: So and the plot was going to have Bob and Doug working as garbage men, being convinced by fast talking insurance man who's played by, Ackroyd, to get into the microbrewing business, which would have been you know kind of keeping with the times and everything back then. Now I guess it'd be the IPA
7: business. Can I say the phrase never followed through sounds a tad pointed? That sounds <laughs> like it may have been written by somebody who was burned.
6: <laughs> it does sound a little. What an pointed, odd <laughs>
7: editorial sounding way to. Say that it just didn't happen. Usually, it's just you know, creative differences, or it just didn't it didn't happen. But he didn't follow through; broke his promise.
6: I'm curious because in the cartoon, Bob and Doug are working as garbage men. So I'm wondering if kind of they took some of those elements from Homebrew and worked them into the comic or into the cartoon. You know, never let a good idea you know die, kind of thing. Oh, there's just so much material when you're a garbage man. I've seen Dominic and Eugene. I know. <laughs>
7: I've seen men at work. I know that was my reference. I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. This hand.
8: That's it. I, I just have the two. I, I really don't. Uh, dark backward.
7: Oh, there oh you go. man. <laughs> Hello. I'm out of my depth.
8: Some good garbage in that film. <laughs> I love it. I love that film.
6: All right. So we're going to take one more break and play a preview for next week's show. <laughs>
4: Welcome, dear Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Something have you heard of Hamlet's transformation? Is it nor the exterior nor the inward man resembles that it was? Heaven make our presence and our practices pleasant and helpful to him.
0: Aye. Amen.
10: I want to go home. Don't let them confuse you.
0: I am but
5: mad north-northwest when the wind is southerly. I know a hawk from a handsaw. Exactly. Exactly what? Exactly why? Exactly why what? What? Why? Why what exactly? Why is he mad?
12: I don't know.
4: (laughs) Will you walk out of the air, my lord? Into my grave? Indeed, that is out of the air. Glean what afflicts him.
5: Me? Him. How? Question and answer. So your uncle's the king of Denmark? That's right. And my father before him. His father before him? No, my father before him. But surely, you may well ask. Your father, whom you love, dies, you and his heir. You come back to find that hardly was the corpse cold before his young brother popped onto his throne and into his sheets, thereby offending both legal and natural practice. Now, why exactly are you behaving in this extraordinary manner? I can't imagine
3: Traians
5: at your command. We can do you rapiers, or rape, or both. We're still finding our feet. I should concentrate on not losing your head. I like him not, therefore prepare you. I, your commission forthwith, will dispatch, and he to England shall along with you. It is an exact command from the King of Denmark, for several different reasons, importing Denmark's health and England's too that on the reading of this letter, without delay, I should have Hamlet's head cut off. I could jump up to the side. That'll put a spoke in their wheel. Unless they're counting on it, I shall remain on board. That'll put a spoke in their wheel.
4: My name is Gildenstern and this is Rosencrantz. I'm sorry. His name is Gildenstern and I'm Rosencrantz.
5: We aim for the point where everyone who is marked for death dies. Who decides? It is this written... Audiences know what to expect And that is all they are prepared to believe in What are they? They're dead (laughs) Wasn't that the end? Do you call that an ending? With practically everyone still on his feet? My goodness, no Over
4: your dead body
6: that's right. We'll be back next week with the second kind of entry in our Shakespeare September. Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Listen to how many times I say Gilderstern instead of Guildenstern. I am sure to be doing that. We'll be joined again by our pal Ed Pettit to talk more about the bard and more about Hamlet. So before we go, I want to check in with our co-host Craig Birko and Skizizic going alphabetically. Craig, what have you been up to lately?
7: Well, I'm in the great white north. Haruka kook, Haruka kook. I mean, I don't have the hang of that yet, but I'm 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 up in Vancouver City that I love and I'm shooting a thing uh, called uh, Unreal, which is a sort of comedy drama backstage at a reality type show like uh, The Bachelor or something like that. And it's it's pretty dark and it's pretty funny. It's with the uh, Shiri Appleby and um, some really great people and uh, Constance Zimmer, uh I did um, Boston Legal with. So it's it's great. And it's a really, really fun show. And I, I'm not aware of any other show that's that's addressing that area. And they're pretty. It's going pretty dark, so it's kind of cool. And uh, and I also just wanted to mention, if I could, that uh, I'm big fans of uh, the Loma Linda Children's Hospital. And uh, if you want to make a uh, these these people did the um, uh, they they were the pioneers of the first infant heart transplant. You know, baby in the baboon heart and all that stuff in the Paul Simon song. They, these are those guys, and uh, they're absolutely terrific but in order to keep their pledge to never turn a child away it would be helpful if you can to uh text kids K I D S at 27722 27722 text kids and you will automatically donate 10 dollars from your phone bill it's painless and you'll be a hero and that's that that's me.
6: How did you get involved with Linda Loma uh,
7: Linda Loma Linda. Uh, Linda Loma that's a darker story that was a bad bad date but she was a roller derby queen and uh, I can't <laughs> talk about that but Legally, but uh, Loma Linda uh, was a. uh, Actually, my uh, my cousin uh, worked there, and I had been avoiding visiting there. They wanted to do a photo op, which will tell you how far out of the celebrity beltway they are. But uh, I had been avoiding it for years. Finally, had to go, and it was one of the most moving days of my life. These doctors were incredible, and I met the guy who um, invented or you know pioneered whatever they're calling it, the uh, infant heart. Uh, And he was working on something else, which was a infant heart. And he, and I held it and it was amazing experience. I held it while it was wired into an infant's chest. These people are amazing. They were so grateful that I showed up, you know, I mean, it was incredible. And I just thought, I want to have something to do with them. I said, it's too late for medical school, but I can certainly pimp my famous friends. So i put on some benefits for them and, uh, and, uh, hosted something for them last year. And it's just been the most satisfying experience uh, of my life truly without hyperbole they're they're amazing people every time i do something like this I, i'd like to you know have it add up just to, to a little bit more than me just sort of criticizing my peers and i'm a big fan of, of your show too i, I love i love the show and i love that you guys are talking about films that you know uh, real film fans want to hear about or that they might not have even even the diehards might not have discovered yet so it's, I love, i big fan of
6: you guys and it's a pleasure to talk to you. So Craig, I'll, I'll make a deal with you. Come back on the show for a movie that you like. Anytime. I'll go ahead and I'll post the information about Loma Linda up at our website, projection-booth.com. So everybody can get that information. If they didn't get the number to text, they'll have that there for perpetuity and hopefully folks will, will give till it hurts because this sounds like a really good it's cause. Awesome. Thank you. So how about you, Skiz? You are tough to keep up with. What have
8: you been up to? A lot of stuff. Working, trying to finish up a film that I've been working on for way too many years trying to finish up a bunch of smaller projects as well but Joe Chappé and I are gearing up to start promoting the release of our film Hit and Stay which is coming out on DVD and video on demand on September 23rd thanks to the fine folks at Brink Vision and from what I understand you can already pre-order it on one giant website I won't mention by name but a smaller website I'd prefer people go to which is atomicbooks.com and uh, so, yeah, hopefully September 23rd, uh, Hit and Stay becomes the hit movie it should have been. And it'll stay. And stay. Yeah.
7: And become a hit. That's obvious. Why didn't you say that? <laughs> yeah. Too obvious. That's why.
6: <laughs> well, very cool. I already have it on pre-order, so I'm looking forward to
7: seeing. Can I ask a question? Yes. The name Skiz Cizik, it's the greatest name ever. Thanks. What is it? Is it long or short for something? And what? please give me a little bit.
8: Sizzik uh, is my real last name, and uh, in high school, like around 1981 or so, I got the nickname Skiz just because of the last name. I didn't want it. I didn't want the nickname, but I couldn't get rid of it, and uh, I embarrassed my parents real bad at some point, and I decided I was just going to go by Skiz from then on, and I did that for years
7: until people started writing me checks, and I, I needed a last name, so Skiz Sizzik. Awesome it's well I, I hope it turns around because i'm a fan of the name <laughs> i don't know if that makes us mortal enemies or whatever but i'll square off uh, <laughs> that's how much i'll back if he says it backwards <laughs> he
6: actually disappears into the 10th dimension
7: it's also the same thing isn't it yeah maybe i'm wrong
6: pretty close <laughs> all right well thank you so much Skiz and craig for coming on the show also thanks to our special guests this week dave thomas jeff robbins Lynn Griffin and Steve DeJarnett will have links to where you can find out more about all their stuff over at our website projection-booth.com and hey, thanks to everybody for listening to yet another episode of the show we hope you'll pay it forward by sharing this with your friends, loved ones and even those people you may not care too much for you know, it, it, it's good to pay it forward, to just uh, ask Kevin Spacey. Now guys, let's go ahead and take off.
7: Hoser.
1: There it is, the final chord of Kraftwerk's Autobahn, a classic sound that so many of us remember from those days. I cannot think of a single piece of music that more than Kraftwerk's Autobahn's final chord says, hey, I know exactly where I am as I'm saying this, except for, of course, I guess the big boy at the opening.
12: Before you go in there we gotta talk it's the kids they're out of control they've lost all respect for me like i'm some sort of fool i told them that you were gonna come home and punish them and do you know
5: what they said <laughs> are you kidding dad wouldn't spank us he's too much of a wimp
11: where are they
3: in jeff's room all
5: right oh look at this man hey 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 are you listening to me hey hurt to jeff You kids, you do not eat donuts on electronic stuff. You know better than that. Are you listening to me? Are you listening to me? Hey, listen, I got something to say. Your mama says you've been bad all day. Yo, you want bad? I'll show you bad. Because now you've gone and made your dad bad. I'm your father, the ruler, the king of this castle. Told the line, don't give me no hassle. I'll spank you, ground you, disconnect your cable. Make you eat your meals at the dining room table. I'm mad. I'm a mad dad. I'm a mad bad dad. Yeah. he's a mother. Kids today, you've got it easy. Life for us, it wasn't so breezy. Twelve kids in a one-room cave. 2nd hand hand-me-downs, not enough to go around. And that's no exaggeration. And what's this noise that you call music? That's not music. This is music. My posse go to work just so we can feed you jerks. Shuffling papers, it's unbearable. Corporate slavery, it's so terrible. We're mad. We're mad dads. We're mad bad dads. And he's a mother. Of the dad. <laughs> no, you don't know how good you got it. Everything you own, I bought it. Talking on the phone. So You're over the line, better take a step back. I'm gentle, but there's a monster inside. You turned Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde. I'm dangerous with a violent attitude, ready to kill because of your ingratitude. Here's the story it's plain to see. You gank your mama and she ganks me. Well, all this ganking, it's got to stop. If you be the criminal, then I be the cop and I'm mad. <laughs> I'm a mad band I'm a mad band dad!
1: Okay, it's time now for our all-time favorite song in the history of recorded music since Thomas Alva Edison invented the phonograph. Yeah, that's his middle name. (laughs) No kidding. Yeah, Alva. I can see why he preferred to be known as Tom. Hey, Alva, could you
5: pass me those light bulbs, please?
1: (laughs) Since he he invented the phonograph too, eh? No kidding. Yeah, since he invented the phonograph and said on record with Jimmy Page backing him up, Hey, Mr. Watson, beauty stereo, eh? Okay, here's the greatest song of all time. It's from the LP, Great White North. Guess what it is. This is where the DJ talks. Don't say anything. Okay. Good day welcome to our single. I'm Bob McKenzie and this is my brother Doug. How's it going, eh? Beauty, okay. eh? Yeah, I like that. Okay. okay. Okay, everyone. This record was my idea. Get out! It was. You're lying. He hit here just sort of rid on my coattail. Why are you doing this? It was our idea together, eh? Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. We agreed to, to say that, but... Oh, take off! Saying, eh? Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Okay, so good day. Our topic today is music. That's right, because like, my brother and I are now experts in the field, Yeah, eh? right, because we're a band now. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, so. except for him. I'm a band. Oh, how can you do that? Making me look bad. You're such a hose hand. Yeah, well, take off.
0: Take off.
4: Jose. Yeah, what?
2: Wow. Yeah, listen to this when it's coming. You know what it is? What? It's a drum solo.
5: Okay, everyone, like, this is me on the drums, Oh, eh? get out. It is not your It line. is soul. Stop
3: the will you? Take off, eh? Oh.
1: Like it was sung by angels. Hey, Jose. Yeah, what? Guess what? What? It's over. Take off. That no, can't be. It is. Yeah, it is. Because Why? I, well, hit records are short. Like, no way. Yeah, they're not that long. Okay, so that's our topic for today. So good day. Good day. Hey, you guys. What?
3: Up.
1: Hey, no. Hey, don't go. No, come back, oh, eh? Look what you did. Everybody's gone. You, you. Come back. I won't let him do it again. Yeah such a hoser. There's no way I'll ever do another record with you, hoser. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. I'll do a solo album. Fine, and you'll be looking for me yeah, like I on another not. label. Oh, now everybody's gone. Good so. day. Good day. Okay. So, that's it, eh. Show's over. Yeah. It went real fast uh for us, but it was probably longer for you, eh. Yeah. And no taping it and bootlegging it. Mm. You know what? What? You never even came up with a new theme Yeah, I did. What? i did want to hear yeah okay i'm not going to do it unless you introduce it okay (laughs) good day all hosers here's my brother doug with his new theme okay this is an original composition folks
3: that's
1: superman you can't do that you can't do that that isn't Superman. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No. You can't steal themes. I made that up. No, you didn't. No. Mar, apologized uh, to John Williams. Take off. Yeah. Okay, that, was... that's the end of the show. Do the real theme. Do our theme. We'll get a new one another time. Do it, okay? Really? Yeah. I'm really sick of it, you know. Okay, well, so am I, but we'll get a new one another time. Go. i will just do the last half, okay?
3: Okay.
1: Okay, so that's the show guest DJ for today. Bob McKenzie, my brother Doug. Good day. Good day. Okay, it's over. Tell that's him. hard, you know, to do that. Well, the guy's rewinding and everything and, like, setting it up. Yeah. And he's got his back turned.
4: I'll get the beers. Okay,
12: Okay. <laughs>
1: Told you it was over. What? The album? Yeah. Is it? Well, yeah. Then we should go, eh? Who's driving? (laughs) Take a look at what shape you're in. I don't want to drive, eh? I am. Okay. Do you remember where we parked? (coughs) Nice. Outside. (laughs) Take
3: off.